Hi, this is Don Coscarelli, the director and writer of Phantasm, and you are listening to Horror Movie Podcast. October horror fans and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies. This is episode 182, the first of five weekly episodes for the 2019 Halloween season leading up to All Hallows Eve itself. This episode of Horror Movie Podcast is brought to you by our Movie Podcast Network patrons. Thank you to all the ghosts and ghouls who support us in any way for making this show possible. Normally on Horror Movie Podcast, you get in-depth horror movie reviews for classic films and new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. I am the Gill Man, Joel Robertson, and my creepy consortium of cohorts are... Hey, it's Dr. Sharkbacker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? We typically do two types of shows on HMP. Our infamous theme discussions, where we pick a horror topic or subgenre to really sink our teeth into. And our Frankensteinian shows, where we just discuss whatever horror films we've been watching lately. 90% of our shows throughout the year fall into one of those categories. But at Halloween time, we do things a little differently. In the past, your HMP horror hosts have brought you complete franchise reviews of Halloween, Scream, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and more. You'll find links to all of those awful episodes in the sickening show notes for this episode at HorrorMoviePodcast.com. This year, we decided to try something new for Samhain. Every week this October, each of your horror hosts will be bringing you our top 10 movies for a particular decade. This week's top 10 are movies from the 1970s. We'll also be bringing you some fun additional segments for your Halloween season, so stick around. If this is your first time listening, this is a pretty atypical episode, and we recommend you check out the themed episodes on the sidebar at HorrorMoviePodcast.com to get a taste of our usual creepy content. And without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so here we are, Wolfman Josh, Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, and me, Gilman Joel. We are here covering our 1970s best of lists. Do we want to talk a little bit about how our lists were created? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. So often we talk about the same movies over and over and over again. To play it safe, what we decided to do was to eliminate any movies that appear in our horror movie podcast official top 10 lists from each decade. So... If we're doing the top 10 horror movies from the 1970s, I went through my top 10 list and removed the movies from the 70s as options for this list. To give you an example, okay, um, from the 1970s, four movies from the 1970s are on my top 10 list. So if we were looking at that, we get, you know, 10 movies plus five honorable mentions. Those four that are already on my top 10 list, I'm going to talk about them separately. 
And then I'm still going to have a top 10 list that omits those. But then on the back end, we're only allowed to talk about 15 movies. I had to subtract four honorable mentions. So for the 1970s, I only have one honorable mention so that we limit everybody to 15 movies. It's almost like not not so much, uh, I guess, a penalty in a way, but it's sort of a friendly a handicap like in golf. Yeah, handicap for having so many from this decade on my all-time top 10 list. Yes, and I think for those keeping score, because if I'm being honest with everyone out there, I had a hard time wrapping my brain around this at first, (laughs) and then they explained it to me, and I was like, oh, okay. Another good case of point is when we get to the 80s, I get no honorable mentions because I had more than five on my list. And the reason to do that is so that we're talking about movies that we don't always talk about. I feel like I talk about the two movies from the 70s that are on my HMP top 10 list all the time. And so what this will do, maybe someone else will talk about those movies, but at least I'm not revisiting those movies again. And I'd rather hear what Joel has to say about it this time. And then I can get into movies that I don't usually talk about. Hopefully that's the, that's the concept. That's the the concept. There will still be some overlap. I think that's uh, that's natural, but it's made my lists much more interesting because how I approach them. And I do top 10 lists on my blog for all these years. But I looked at it like, okay, which is which one is one that I would really want to sit down right now and watch? So there are some movies that are lower on my top 10, top 20 list for some years that I actually put on this list just because I'm thinking, well, I think I'd really rather sit down and watch. I don't necessarily think it's a better movie than some of these other ones, but it's one that I really enjoy good enough to put on the list in the first place and a movie that right now I'd rather sit down and watch this than this other one. Uh, and that's how I was uh, was approaching this. These are like favorites. These are like my favorites of the 1970s, as opposed to what I would say are the 10 best films, in my opinion, um, right. of the 1970s or the best after my first four, uh, the, the best of what's left of the <laughs> 70s. Right. So, for instance, for me, I did a top 100 best movies of the 1970s list on Letterboxd, and those were ranked. This is not going to reflect that same list because in that list, I was trying to be objective. I was trying to look at the importance of a film and, you know, it's, it's resonance within and its impact on horror. I'm not doing that with this. I'm talking about the movies I want to watch. And so this is definitely a favorites list and more reflects my personal tastes. Yep. Yeah. And I have to say thank you to Dave because I know I struggle with putting together lists like this. I really do. I think that was pretty obvious when I did my top 10 several episodes back. I love the idea that he gave me, which is the the Roger Ebert maxim of pick movies that if you the idea of never watching these again actually makes you sad, breaks your heart, causes you pain, whatever. And that was real easy for me to then say, okay, you know what? I love this movie, but if I had to choose between it and this one I'm putting above it, which one would break my heart more to know that I'd never see this again? And that made it, I mean, easier with air quote fingers. <laughs> it made it easier right. to break that down. Now, that being said, as a result, it's very possible my list would look way different 
than your list. And that is why I think I speak for all of us here when we say what we really would love is for all the listeners to go to the show notes for this episode and leave your top 10 and your five honorable mentions because, you know, we'll, we'll cut you that slack. Unless, of course, you want to follow the same rule of deducting from your honorable mentions based on how many uh, from that same decade you have in your main top 10 list. So we would love to see everybody contribute and put yours there so we can read them because it's fun. And there, there are quite a few movies on mine, especially I'd say on my 80s list that I think will be debatable for people. Is that even, would you really call that a horror movie? And for me, yes. I And be, mainly because the idea of never, I feel like it has enough horror trappings and the idea of never watching it again would cause me actual physical pain. Therefore, it is on that list. I just think it's a nice little personal rule to follow and it helped me for sure make the decisions that I made. And me too. So you guys ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. Wolfman, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I'll go first. So before I get into my list, I'm going to tell you the two movies from the 1970s that were on my HMP top 10 horror movies of all time list. They are John Carpenter's Halloween and Steven Spielberg's Jaws. So those two films will not appear on my top 10 list. My number 10 is a movie that I just watched recently for the first time, and I've been avoiding it since I heard about it because it was described to me as an LSD movie. <laughs> and so I thought, yeah, it's not usually my type of film. I do like movies that are visually driven and, and the narrative doesn't always need to adhere to a screen ready 101 kind of structure for me to enjoy it. I, I'm fine with ambiguity. I'm fine with, I, I really like visual flair. But for some reason, when it gets trippy in quotes, it's just a turnoff. I don't know why, <laughs> but I don't like, I kind of don't like the kind of drug infused era of filmmaking for whatever reason, generally. Um, and so when I heard this was an LSD film, I avoided it and I just decided to sit down and watch it a couple weeks ago. And man, it blew my mind. Number one, it doesn't have the feel you would expect from that type of film. Number two, it's just so bonkers, and but at the same time, beautifully shot, beautifully acted. This is a film by Jeff Lieberman from 1978. It's called Blue Sunshine. I have not seen that yet. No, I, I, uh, you haven't, Dave, because I thought you had, actually. I was thinking to myself, I haven't seen it, and I was thinking that I had heard about it from you, but maybe uh, not. No, I don't think, because I, I own it. Maybe that's what <laughs> Maybe we were talking what about. Maybe, yeah. One of one of the many movies I own but haven't watched yet. I might. Uh, so I'm gonna have to put that high yeah. on the pro. That's awesome. Yeah, that is this really is, cool. It's a definite must see. To go to the IMDb premise, it just says a bizarre series of murders begins in Los Angeles, where people start going bald and then become homicidal maniacs. But could the blame rest on a particularly dangerous form of LSD called Blue Sunshine? The murderers took ten years before, and it's super fun. It's just a really fun movie. The lead actor, well, all of the actors actually are fantastic. Deborah Winters in this is so good. Um, but the lead is played by Zalman King. He looks like a young Sean Penn. And he's as good as Sean Penn. Like wow. he, oh, wow. his performance is incredible. He's all in on this. And he's not an actor that I've seen in hardly anything else. I see he's in Nine and a Half Weeks and Wild Orchid, which is pretty impressive to me in both of those films. Wasn't he a director? Wasn't he a director of erotic soft core type movies? Well, there you go. Yeah, he directed yeah. Wild Orchid. Okay. There you go. Okay. Okay. But I had not, I, he was not someone who was familiar to me. But man, um, 
I love his performance in this movie. I would like to see him in a lot more stuff. That's very cool. So if people want to see a movie that's kind of feels like some weird cross between a zombie movie and a cult movie, I would recommend checking out Blue Sunshine from 1978. And I would also uh, think that for people like me, you know, the follically challenged, it's a really good uh, <laughs> warning tale that I probably should should, should mm. watch and uh, cautionary yeah. tale. Ca- yeah, cautionary tale. Thank you. Yes. It's going to se- send you off to the hair club for men. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so Dave, what is your number 10? Okay. I had four movies from the 1970s on my HMP official top 10 list. They are the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which uh, Joel and I talked about not too long ago in episode 178, the highway of horrors. Uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which we talked about actually way back in episode 35, our Black Friday, the horrors of consumerism episode. Yes. John Carpenter's Halloween from episode 27, the first episode of the Halloween franchise review. I wasn't there for the official main review, but then Greg Amortis and I came in later to give our opinions on it. And then number four, The Exorcist, which the only place I found that is in my top 10, the, the original top 10 that I gave, which is way back in episode two, my first appearance on HMP, where I covered my top 10 and I do talk uh, rather extensively about The Exorcist. And by the way, any of the films that we cover on this episode that we have reviewed before, I will put links to those in the show notes at horrormoviepodcast.com. My number 10 is a movie that I think deals uh, very well with, with rage and with marital strife. And it is from 1979, David Cronenberg's The Brood. Ooh. Oh, nice. Yeah, like I said, it does deal with rage. I think like no film has before, and it, it sort of combines Cronenberg's love of body horror. To set it up, Oliver Reed plays a, uh, a psychiatrist at this institute. They have a, a certain radical form of therapy called psychoplasmics. And one of his patients is uh, Nola, played by Samantha Egger. It's the estranged wife of uh, Frank Carveth. Um, well, you know, uh, Frank picks up his daughter, Candace, who spent the day visiting her mother, Nola, at the Institute, and notices that she has several bruises on her back. And he gets angry. He's convinced that these injuries that, that Nola inflicted them, and he goes to demand to see her. The doctor uh, won't let her. And then it gets even stranger because several mutated children who kind of look like Candace suddenly go on a killing spree, murdering anyone who might have gotten Nola angry over the years. So it kind of is building up to this, this sort of mystery of, hey, what's really going on here? Now, when Cronenberg made this film, he was actually going through a pretty messy divorce and custody battle. So it's almost like he's working out some of his issues in this film. But the way it's handled is, you know, in typical Cronenberg fashion, just very, very bizarre. But ultimately, I think very effective. And by the end, it is just insane. So that's my number 10. Um, and it's whenever I hear Cronenberg, he's got a lot of great movies, but this is always the one that, that pops into my head whenever I hear his name is, is The Brood. It just sort of affected me to that level when I first saw it. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm I am very familiar with Cronenberg's work post 1980, so Scanners mm-hmm. and on, and all of his early stuff. For whatever reason, I have never had a chance to visit. So I've always been interested in The Brood and in Shivers. Uh, it was Rabid, right? And Rabid, uh, yep, yeah. that's an early so, 70s. Yeah, one, yeah. so I w- I've always wanted to watch these. So thank you for 
making this one go pop back into my consciousness that I need to make it a priority. All worth watching, but I would say The Brood is the best of those three you mentioned. Okay. And I would agree. So my original horror movie podcast top 10 list, I had three 1970s movies that will not be included here. And as a result, I only have two honorable mentions. So my three picks were Black Christmas from 1974, directed by Bob Clark. If you haven't seen it, please check that one out. It's fantastic. Uh, Halloween, of course. I think it is uh, uh, goes without saying what an amazing movie that is. And like Dave, I also had The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And for my original horror movie podcast top 10 list, which I guess was not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, not certainly not episode two, but uh, I guess we'll link up to that in the show notes as well. All right, so my number 10. Now, my number 10 is going to be probably the first of many, <laughs> at least on, but maybe maybe the only one on this list, but definitely by the time we get to the 80s. But this one is going to be the movie that people might debate. Is that even a really a horror movie? Now, IMDb lists it as drama, comma, horror. I think it certainly falls into the bucket if you're going to get really specific of psychological horror. And for me personally, it is always, it's one of those movies that taps into a phobia, an issue that I have always had uh, ever since I was four years old. And I probably have mentioned this. I know I mentioned a retro movie geek before. I won't go into the whole story here, but let's just say the first horror movie I was ever exposed to four years that I can remember four years old creature feature with Dr. Paul Bearer channel 44 Saturday afternoon. And I can remember this day seeing a movie called devil doll with Hugo, mm. the doll. And they actually had a, a little person with like this paper mache ventriloquist dummy head. And this magician <laughs> controls him and uses him to kill people. And it, messed me up and then like two christmases later what do my parents do yeah here's a great idea let's buy our kid a mortimer snurd ventriloquist dummy so <laughs> let's just say there are issues there deep rooted issues um and i even have something when we when we get to our halloween campfire tales related to dolls and so my point being that is why my number 10 my pick is starring one sir anthony hopkins the wonderful nice. Anne Margaret, the fantastic as always Burgess Meredith, and directed by the man who will spare no expense himself, Sir Richard Attenborough, Magic from 1978. Nice. Yeah, That's I, awesome. I love Great this film. Movie. I love this yeah. movie. It is a slow burn. It is not particularly intense in the strictest terms of that. I mean, if you're a person like me who also loves watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but that's your like that's where you want your horror to be at. I don't know that magic would be for you, but for me, because it hits those right notes and it really is one of those great is he or isn't he cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs kind of movies that I just think is is wonderful. It's written by William Goldman, who, in my opinion, is one of the greatest screenwriters ever. And All time. yeah, he really is. And uh, it, it's just a fantastic, fantastic movie uh, that I can't recommend enough. And the basic plot in case you're not familiar with it is Anthony Hopkins plays a ventriloquist who has an act uh, with, with his sidekick he plays like I love that his character's name is Corky <laughs> and his dummy's name is Fats and he's basically <laughs> starting to burn out and he's and he's got some uh, you know kind of bordering on nervous breakdown type issues Burgess Meredith plays his agent well Corky decides he's going to get away and he goes Back to an area that he uh, is familiar with and crosses paths with someone uh, played by the wonderful, as always, Anne Margaret. And she was a high school sweetheart. And it's sort of about him trying to uh, work his way into rekindling their romance. But meanwhile, 
Fats has other ideas. And, you know, there's a lot of interchange and exchange between him and Fats and what Fats wants him to do. And, and it just all builds and builds and builds. Fantastic psychological horror film. I can't recommend it enough. That's Magic from 1978. Nice. Great film. I back you up on that. Thank you very much. I don't. I don't like. Uh, I don't like any doll movies, but it's <laughs> 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 a quality one. Thank you. Thank you. So, Wolfman, what is your number nine? So, the seventies, as we've talked about, was kind of a gritty time. It's kind of this time of the next step up for horror movies. But I would also say that the seventies is really the era of the thriller, and I feel like, especially with giallos, were happening. And um, a lot of the horror movies have kind of this, you know, we did our proto slasher episode on HMP. And I feel like a lot of movies in the seventies have that kind of proto slasher vibe to them. They're kind of somewhere in the middle ground between thriller and horror and have that kind of gritty giallo vibe. And so this film is not necessarily giallo influenced, but it is probably fair to also call it a thriller it was a major influence on fatal attraction and then to a lesser degree an influence on misery as well as quentin tarantino's death proof my number nine is clint eastwood's directorial debut play misty for me oh i love that movie i really enjoy this one i mean for one thing i'm a fan of clint eastwood as a director i think his work is usually pretty interesting and he he does like to play in the thriller area quite a bit. Um, and his films are often very violent. And so I was a latecomer to this film, but I, I really enjoyed it when I watched it. And, you know, I, I think because I'm a movie nerd, I think a lot of my appreciation was sitting there going, Oh, that's, that was in fatal attraction. Oh, that was in death proof. Oh, that was in misery, you know, and I feel like uh, I, I got a lot of kind of meta enjoyment out of the film for that reason. But yeah, I mean, it's it's got its problems, at least in terms of 2019 at the time of this recording politics or social politics. It's, you know, it's pretty misogynistic in a lot of ways, but it fits perfectly into that stalker thriller category. We got a lot of that in probably from the seventies to the nineties, that was a major subgenre. And I, you know, I think this has to be a major influence on everything that came after it. I'm with you, Josh. I saw this again, maybe just a couple months ago, actually. Hmm. And I, I really enjoyed it uh, as well from, you know, and again, because of that stalker story, you feel kind of bad for this guy when you really shouldn't be feeling bad for him because he right. kind of <laughs> brought a lot of it on himself and continues to bring a lot of it on himself. <laughs> But you still feel a little, you still feel bad for him. And um, Donna Mills, Jessica Walter, Clint Eastwood. You get to see Irene Hervey in there, which is awesome. I mean, it's a pretty impressive directorial debut from Clint Eastwood. I think I will now get to be the naysayer. I can't stand that movie. Oh, really? <laughs> we covered it a, a few months back on our Retro Movie Geek, and I remembered liking it a lot. Wow, I just I, I I commend you for putting it on your list. I think it, I could see why somebody would, but for me, that thing was a slog, and I I just it did not for me did not hold up, and I was disappointed because when I first saw that, when I was probably my late teens, early twenties, I remember loving it, and then we watched it again, and I don't know what it what was in the water, man, but it didn't work for me at all. Hmm, interesting. All right, Dave, what is your number nine? 
my number nine is my second favorite. Cool. Vincent Price horror film, The Abominable Dr. Fives from 1971. Nice. It's certainly the most bizarre role I think that Vincent Price ever played. And it's second to my first, my favorite Vincent Price horror film is uh, from the 50s, House on Haunted Hill. I, I just, that's always going to be my favorite, I think. Because I think he's, he gives a great performance in it. And I just love that, that William Castle style in that movie. But uh, anyway, this is about a, a musician who... He's driven to madness when his wife dies, Victoria. is played by an uncredited Carolyn Monroe. All she does is lay there, actually. She died on the operating table. He's preserved her body. And he wants to destroy the doctors and nurses that he holds responsible for her demise. And there were nine of them in that operating room who tried to save Victoria's life. So, being a scholar of theology, he decides that the nine plagues of Egypt, instrument for his revenge, um, he, with his assistant, Bonavia, I think is her name, uh, he sets off to kill the doctors and nurses one by one, and usually in gruesome fashion, uh, until he gets to the very last one, the one he holds most responsible, Dr. Vesalius, played by Joseph Cotton. Uh, I think what I like, the kill scenes are really clever. What, what he manages to do with these nine plagues uh, is really clever. And the character that Vincent Price plays doesn't speak. He talks by way of a phonograph record that is his voice and i think it's sort of feeding it through him that you never see his lips move but you hear his voice throughout the movie uh which i thought was a real interesting choice it's it's visually exciting and vincent price like i said he just gives a, a great one of his great performances i think with what he was given to do you know what his character does it's a tremendous performance but and it's the kill scenes i think that really make it stand out so that's my number nine, the abominable Dr. Fives. Excellent. All right. So my number nine is a movie that I know I covered on Forgotten Flicks way back in the same Spooky Flicks Fest, Dave, that you and I covered the Fun House. So this would oh, have been okay. 2013 Spooky Flicks Fest for Forgotten Flicks. Uh, so Retro Movie Geek, in case for those that don't know, used to be Forgotten Flicks. And in this particular episode, Jason Grooms, my co-host, and I had a good buddy of mine named Doug on, and we covered my number nine, which is Phantasm from 1979. Nice. I really, it's one of those movies that I probably have seen half a dozen times, but every time I revisit it, because I guess I leave just enough time in between to forget things. And I'll, when I revisit it, I'll, I'll forget a certain moment or a sequence. And when it happens, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That was this movie. And I think that's fitting because the movie plays like a nightmare. I mean, it just it plays like a dream and it, it uses dream logic. And I am a fan of that. I know there are people that aren't, but I am a fan of that. Um, I love the score. I think it's iconic. I, Don Coscarelli, the filmmaker, I love that guy. I, I loved Beastmaster. I love Bubba Hotep. I love a lot of the movies he's made. And I just think Phantasm as another example of that DIY, just sort of down and dirty, uh, you know, indie, how indie horror filmmaking was back in that 70s, early 80s time period. And and the fact that it's a movie that came out the year after Halloween, but is so different in so many ways, whereas, you know, by the time you're getting into that early 80s era, obviously, a lot of people are trying to create their own, quote unquote, Halloween so they can kind of glom onto that. But 
this was so different. I mean, not just from Halloween or anything from the immediate time period, but really, uh, I mean, <laughs> anything that had come before or after, because it's such a weird hybrid of genres with you know sci-fi horror and i would argue some dark comedy as well that plays throughout the whole movie so uh, it, it basically tells the story of a boy and his brother and they are together and they end up having to battle someone known as the tall man played by angus scrim and he runs a funeral home and he may or may not be of this earth and that's all I'll say. It just involves fly, flying spherical balls that can drill holes through your head and uh, just really bizarro nightmare imagery and uh, uh, killer Jawas. <laughs> it's basically uh, what this movie has. So uh, I am a fan. This is my number nine phantasm from 1979. You want to let our listeners know that we also covered that on horror movie podcast episode 82. We did a franchise review crossover with the sci-fi podcast uh, we covered phantasm one and two on hmp and then we did three and four and later five on the sci-fi podcast yes because as i recall matroid is a big fan matroid yeah phantasm is one of his favorite films of all time as is phantasm two he's a mega fan I gave this one a 4.5, but I, I hear you, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> this is your play Misty for me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I, and I, I think I get, I think I was like a 6.5 or something on the original. I think I like the second one better. The first one is a uh, very unique. Yeah, definitely. I called it a buy it still, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I'm pretty sure I did too. Yeah. Matroid only came in at a 6.5 on this, actually. Really? He came in at a 10 on Phantasm 2. Interesting. He's a fan of the franchise. Yeah, that's interesting. I've seen two. It's been years and years. I think I've seen three, but I don't. I haven't seen four and five. I know that for a fact. But I have. I've definitely seen one and two. I haven't seen two in so long, though. I might as well just say I haven't because I'm sure if I revisited it, I would remember very little. I know Reggie Bannister's in it. It is fun. Yeah, I would uh, compare it to the Evil Dead and the Evil Dead Two in terms yeah. of how the films feel. Yeah. So I, uh, I I am a fan though of the original for sure. So, Wolfman, what's your number eight? All right. My number eight in terms of my top horror movies of the 70s is uh, Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. Ooh. Now, Ooh, this is a polarizing film, I think, as are actually most of the films on my top ten list as I'm thinking about it. But, you know, this is a movie that is left pretty ambiguous in the end, and I think that drives a lot of people crazy. I love the mood of this film. I think it's beautifully shot and acted, and I just think it's um, it puts you in a trance almost. Uh, this is a film, again, directed by Peter Weir from 1975 and based on the popular novel, Picnic at Hanging Rock. According to IMDb, during a rural summer picnic, a few students and a teacher from an Australian girls' school vanish without a trace. Their absence frustrates and haunts the people left behind. And uh, yeah, this film definitely haunted me, although I do think it frustrates some viewers. I think it's worth watching and it's my number eight. And I, what I liked, one of the things I liked about it, and again, it goes back to being beautifully shot, is how foreboding Hanging Rock is actually appears in the movie. Where shoots it like the camera down low uh, with the character sort of passing in front and this, this, Hanging Rock just so, you know, huge behind them. 
each time the accent shifts back to that location, it puts you on edge just from the way he's presenting it. I think there was a producer, one of the producers of the film said he never visited that area again because the movie really made him afraid of it. And I think that <laughs> Peter Weir does a great job of, of building that into this movie. I mean, it's a mystery and he keeps you guessing. And it is, like you said, there's a lot of ambiguity in it. You're never quite sure what's, what's actually happened there. Mm. But the location, I think, really goes a long way in, in, in classifying it as a, as a horror film, even. Yeah, and there's a remake that I guess came out last year. It's a television miniseries, which I have not watched yet, that looks good. And I believe it's streaming uh, for free with an Amazon Prime subscription. It stars Natalie Dormer. And uh, it looks great. But yeah, I definitely recommend people watch the original first yeah that looks like that one is a six-part television miniseries starting natalie dormer but yeah watch the peter film. well and i will because uh full disclosure i have not seen that movie so i am jotting it down i have i have homework to do kids yep all right so dave what's your number eight my number eight is a movie that i know i've talked about before uh most recently I know it came up in episode 171, our Us and Horror Noir reviews, and it is from 1972, Blackula, ah. starring William Marshall as the title character. For me, Blackula, for me, has a title that it makes it sound like a comedy, but there is no comedy in this film. It is a straight right. up vampire, and these are feral vampires. We could have talked about this in our Fear of Vampires film. I don't know if I'd seen it at that point in time. I came to this one a little more recently. And it's an awesome performance by William Marshall, who wanted, who worked with the director to give the character some dignity. And I think he really does. And it is a, it is a great version of the Dracula story. It opens in the past. Um, he plays a, an African prince who's talking with Count Dracula played by Charles McCauley in the, uh, you know, briefly at the opening, to bring an end to the slave trade. Well, to get revenge, Count Dracula turns, he, he kills the prince's wife, and turns uh, the prince into a vampire, then nails him up in a coffin, saying, now you will forever be craving blood and unable to get it. Well, 200 years later, some interior decorators find the coffin among some old furniture open it up and the next thing you know there is uh blackula loose on the residence of los angeles and turning other residents into vampires and they are some creepy looking vampires there are some true jump scares in this film it really is i, I don't even like to classify it as black exploitation because i think that demeans it in a way, and I don't, I don't mean that, you know, to demean other black exploitation films because I love a lot of them, like Coffee and Bucktown and all those films. But this one, I think, is above that. I think it, it, I think it just sort of got lumped into that whole style of film, just from the time period and from the cast. It sort of is considered that, but I don't think it really is. And Marshall's performance is a bit goes a long way in really selling this, but it is a straight up horror film. And it's one I think everybody should see. I agree. Excellent. Yeah. There were, I think there were two really great Dracula films in the seventies. And this is right up there with the other one, in my opinion, is the other one. Love at first bite. 
Yes. <laughs> no. Eight, that's 80s, right? I don't know. No, I think no, it was 79. It's 79. The, yeah, I think the, it was uh, right there at the just end. Just in the 70s. Okay, so my number eight is a movie that I will tell you right now, I have searched all of my sites. I've searched HMP, and unless I'm missing something, I don't think any of us have covered it before, which I personally find shocking. Shocking, I tell you, because this is a movie that I think helped... Well, it didn't launch because prior to this, there had been a demonic sort of um, antichrist type movie from the previous decade that some people may have heard of called Rosemary's Baby. But this, I think, helped launch us into a lot of the subsequent knockoffs that maybe we got, which is uh, 1976, The Omen. Uh, the Richard Donner directed movie. That is my number eight pick. And I could be wrong, but and correct me if I'm wrong, Wolfman, I don't see that we've ever covered it on HMP. No, we've re- referenced it obviously several times, but no, sure. I don't think we've ever done a feature review of any of the Omen films. The person who previously occupied your seat is apparently not scared of little kids. So that ah, probably has gotcha. something to do with that. <laughs> gotcha. Even if that little kid has a 666 tattooed to his head and demonic dogs. <laughs> that uh, do his bidding. I don't know if he could take the son of Satan. That's a showdown. I would like to see. I would like to see Jay taking on the son of Satan. I do believe David Warner would have uh, a point to be made about (laughs) whether or not you could take on the son of Satan. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. This movie is one that uh, in case you're not familiar with the story, uh, it stars Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, and I mentioned David Warner and uh, Gregory Peck is a, it's been a while, but as I recall, he's a diplomat, right? And he's in Rome and his wife gives birth. And let's just say their son turns out their beautiful, cute little boy uh, may <laughs> or may not be Satan. So they, <laughs> he, he goes about a, a bit of a, a, my, a mystery trying to unravel uh, all, all of the uh, machinations of, of various people involved uh, with the Catholic Church and some other people that may have uh, led to what he finds himself, the situation he finds himself in. And David Warner assists him. And this is a movie that as a pretty young kid, like um, before pre-12, I'm thinking like 10, 9, 10, somewhere in there, my dad had HBO and I it must have been HBO because I only thing I ever remembered was flipping through the channels and without giving anything away, let's just say there's a key scene involving plate glass and I managed to catch it like right as that scene was starting. And, you know, you're a kid. So you're like, oh, what, what is this? And <laughs> and the way that scene ends, uh, let's just say it traumatized me massively. And of course, I had no context. I had no idea what I was watching. I'm just flipping through channels and oh, let's oh, good God. What just happened? So uh, it, it always freaked me out. And then, of course, years later, I finally saw The Omen. And realize, oh, that's this movie. So I think it is just a really great horror film. It's got a classiness to it. I mean, I I, I think Richard Donner, in my opinion, is one of those sort of journeyman filmmakers that just doesn't get enough credit for some of the movies he was involved with. He, you know, he obviously did a lot of big franchisey type things, but they always have this quality. He always managed to still have a, a bit of an auteur aspect to him, even though what he did so often were more of these sort of big studio type movies. So uh, I've always been a big fan of his. And uh, I think The Omen is 100% worth checking out. I highly recommend it. And the only other reference to it in 
amongst all of our different sites is on Forgotten Flicks. My good buddy, Peter Nielsen, co-host of Retro Movie Geek, wrote a review, a retro movie review of The Omen. And that is, uh, so that is there if you want to go check that over on Forgotten Flicks. Definitely some of the best music ever in a horror movie. In my oh, life, for sure. I think the soundtrack score to this is incredible. Yes. This movie actually is a little bit of a, a history for me because uh, I had a friend over one night. My parents were out for the night and we watched this on cable. And my my brother was watching with us and he's originally like, oh, this isn't so scary. Uh, then the scene with, uh, who was it? Jack Palance's daughter, Holly. Mm-hmm. Uh, out on the ledge yes. happens. And Damien, the next thing you know, it's all for you. All for you, Damien, yes. And then uh, later on when the pictures are shown, um, the sort of detailing what happens to several characters or what might happen to several characters as predicted in these random photos that were taken, uh, that pretty much pushed my brother over the edge. He went from <laughs> not being scared to when my parents came home, he had the light on over his bed. <laughs> my mother went to turn it off. He woke up in a state of fright and said, I thought you were the omen. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Who knows if the band ACDC would have ever caught on if not for this film. Oh, that's true. true. That's true. Good Very point. True. <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, so Wolfman, what is your number seven? All right. My number seven is a film that I've reviewed on the show before. In fact, I reviewed it on episode number 161 at the time. I gave it a nine and I called it a must-see masterpiece is Dario Argento's Suspiria. Again, another polarizing film on my list, um, but it's one that I just love. I love the visual style. That you know, I, Do I wish there were more evil witches? Yeah. Do I wish there was a little more narrative structure? Sure. But what we're given, I think, is incredible and it's a work of art. From the IMDb synopsis, an American newcomer to a prestigious German ballet academy comes to realize that the school is a front for something sinister amid a series of grisly murders. I've already called this a masterpiece in the past, so I don't know what much more I can say about it. If you want to hear our feature review, you can go back to episode 161. Yeah, I will say that for me, if I had had more honorable mentions available, that would have been on it. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember really, really liking it a lot and just thinking it was beautiful. And I'm a fan of Argento. Uh, he, he did a film uh, in the 80s and hopefully we'll have an opportunity during the uh, the 80s list episode for me to go into that one a little bit. Uh, it's not. I'm not giving you the way because it's not on my list or anything. But I will say I, I have a, a marginal personal story connected to that one that if uh, it comes up, I'd love to talk about. But yeah, I'm I'm an Argento fan and I think that is a a really beautiful, disturbing, weird movie. All right, so Dave, your number seven? My number seven is, as a matter of fact, I'm kind of sticking with the same theme as my number eight. And Josh, I, you might be a fan of this movie. I think I've heard you mention it before, and you mentioned about two really good vampire films from the 1970s. I'm not sure if this is it or not. My number seven is Hammer's Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Oh, nice. yes. Set in the 19th century, uh, Captain Kronos played by Horst Jansen, is a soldier who, helped by his hunchbacked accomplice, Professor Gross, roams English countryside, destroying any vampire foolish enough to get in his way. That's just the basic uh, sort of premise for the film. 
But one of the things I like most about it is it changes up the mythology of the vampires. It's Gross, who I think kind of sets it up for us. He says there's different species of vampires, uh, that there are as many different species of vampires as there are beasts of prey. Their methods and their motives for attack can vary in a hundred different ways. Some attack during the day. How you defeat some of them is very different. And I liked how this movie addressed that. Plus, it has that sort of that hammer. This A lot of it was shot on location. And I think Hammer did a great job when they went out on location, especially in the 70s. Now, unfortunately, in the 70s, Hammer was starting to go downhill. Kronos, I think, was set up to become a series of movies, much like the Draculas and uh, the Frankensteins of the 50s and into the 60s and actually into the 70s as well uh, for the two of those. And it's unfortunate that Hammer didn't make it because I think Kronos might have saved Hammer. If they were able to turn this into a series, I would have loved to have seen more with these characters. I thought uh, that the lead did a good job. There's action. There are some pretty good uh, really sword fights thing. in this. Yeah, so, and, and um, that's fine. So I'm a big fan of this one. So that's my number seven. That is fantastic. And Dave, I almost included it. However, I didn't feel right because I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And I saw it on, did either of you ever watch Commander USA's groovy movies on the USA Network back in the I'm 80s? I'm aware of it, yes. Okay. I, I think I did see it a few times. Well, I make no secret about my love of horror hosts. I, I love them. I own books about them. And Commander USA, while yes, he was on a cable channel and it wasn't one of these more, you know, hometown type horror host guys, uh, it, it, it was played by a, a guy named Jim Hendricks and he was fantastic. He was he always reminded me of Tom Atkins a bit and he was a mm. soaring superhero that lived beneath a teeming shopping mall in New Jersey and he would uh you know he'd show you a movie each Saturday afternoon and he would show a lot of stuff and he would show like the uh like a lot of the with the um Mexican wrestler uh, type horror films. He would show uh, yeah, Santos movies. Yeah, the Santos movies. Was, yeah. yeah, the Santos yeah. movies. He would show uh, I mean just lots of wacky stuff and one day he would show a lot of hammer things and Captain Cronus was on. But at the time as a kid, I mean, I'm like 10, 11, 12 in that range. I had no idea what it was. I missed the opening, so I didn't catch the title. And the thing that always stuck in my head, though, was there's a scene of them uh, sword fighting. And I think there's and I'm just going purely from memory here. And this is possibly, well, guess what? He was on from 85 to 89. So it's that long ago. That would have been when I saw this movie. And he, I guess they're, they're sword fighting. And I just remember someone getting, I guess their jugular cut and there's just this arterial spray on this. And in my memory, it's, there's a lot of white in the scene and it just, am I, am I remembering this right, Dave? I don't know when the last time you saw it was, if you, it's, uh, it's been a couple years. Okay. So it's possible. There are several sword fights in the movie. And, uh, the, that's one of the things I enjoyed about it was this sort of blend of action with the horror. Yeah. And it really freaked me out because it was that real bright red, almost technicolor blood everywhere. And, uh, and it always stuck with me. And so for years I would, and this is, you know, early days of internet, uh, you know, pre podcasts and, and I, and I didn't, uh, have necessarily the context I do now where I could say, you know, to listeners, Hey guys, I, I had this vague memory of a movie. Does this ring a bell to anybody? So I would just scour trying to figure out what the hell was this movie <laughs> that I remember from a kid being a kid. <laughs> and so it was, it turned out it was Captain Kronos and I ended up, I still own it. I bought off of eBay like 15 years ago, maybe even longer. A, uh, if you're familiar with the Australian day bills, like 13 by 30, and it's a real kind of not a great quality one, but it's of Captain Kronos. And it's, nice. it's like, it's pretty much a, it's almost a, 
uh, monochromatic because it's pretty much the white paper and it's like red. The the all the ink and everything on it is just red. Uh, and I'll have to take a picture if if I get a chance to, Josh, and I'll send it to you. Maybe we can include it in the show notes. But it's just this cool, and I've always kept it. And again, it's a movie that I haven't seen in thirty plus years. But it's always stuck with me. That's the only reason I didn't include it on my list was because I felt like, well, it's been so stinking long since I've seen it that uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that's really cool. I'm glad you put that on there. All right. So I guess it's time for my number seven. And my number seven is a movie that was covered on Spooky Flicks Fest last year uh, for Retro Movie Geek with none other than Dave Dr. Shock Becker. And I didn't do this on purpose, Dave. It just worked out this way. I know what this is. Yes, you do. It is Tales from the Crypt from 1972. Amicus. Yes. Yes, it is an Amicus uh, production. And I added it because, quite honestly, this may be, next to maybe Creepshow, (laughs) this may be my favorite horror anthology movie. It And it was a movie that prior to us recording i had seen i think once before and i feel like i saw it on tv uh and years before i don't even remember how like i felt like i always seen part of it maybe uh but when we watched it though for last year's spooky flicks fest it just struck me at what a quality movie this was and of course most people are familiar with something else i'm a huge fan of which is the tales from the crypt tv show that was on hbo Mm -hmm. in the very late 80s but in through the uh, early to mid 90s uh, with the Crypt Keeper, but this is different. It's it's amicus. It's very British, and just it's got, it stars Peter Cushing, and I mean it's just a fantastic movie. Uh, it was directed by Freddie Francis. Uh, I, I got just high level. Joe you know, Joan Collins is in it, and it's uh, to just read the IMDb description. Five strangers get lost in a crypt, and after meeting the mysterious Crypt Keeper, receive visions of how they will die. And this movie is probably the most notorious because it has the original and all through the house, which is Joan Collins character has committed a crime. Mm. And meanwhile, there is the classic trope of escaped lunatic from the local asylum who just happens to be dressed like Santa Claus. And he's a homicidal maniac and he he knows outside of the house and they ended up remaking this. I believe it's maybe the very first episode or one of the very first episodes of the Tales from the Crypt TV show that Robert Zemeckis himself directed. Uh, Mary Ellen Trainer played the wife of that one. And it is very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, but Larry Drake plays the homicidal maniac in that. He was also Dr. Giggles and Dark Man, right? Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Yes, that's right. Yes, he was in that as well, which is a fantastic movie. And this version, though, while I, I think on some level, I maybe enjoyed the Tales from the Crypt one a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, just maybe because of the aesthetics and some other things. I just remember we had such a great conversation, Dave, about this movie, about the different stories. I remember loving the one with Peter Cushing. I, that was such a great sort of, you know, bad people getting their comeuppance sort of tale. Uh, it's just, it's a really, really well done, classy horror anthology film. So if you love anthologies, like I know I do, Dave, I know you're a fan, Josh, I'm pretty sure you're a fan of horror anthologies as well. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Have you seen tales from the crypt? The 72? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We covered this on our old school anthologies episode. There we go. So yeah, that is my number seven. Great choice. Definitely listen to Joel and Dave talk about this movie. That is a fun listen. But if you haven't had enough of Tales from the Crypt at that point, you can go check out Horror Movie Podcast episode 99. All right. So, Wolfman, your number six. 
My number six is another divisive film. (laughs) Uh, This one is described as a schoolgirl and six of her classmates travel to her aunt's country home, which turns out to be haunted. And if there were ever an understatement of a film synopsis, that would be it. This is the Japanese film Haosu, or known here as House, from 1977. One of the craziest, most bonkers movies I've ever seen in my life. I talked earlier about not necessarily loving trippy movies. This movie is the pinnacle, in my opinion, of psychedelic Mm -hmm. film. I mean, this is one of the craziest films you'll ever see. I love the way that Criterion describes the movie. How do you describe a film like this? It's so indescribable. They say an episode of Scooby-Doo as directed by Mario Bava. Like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> that is awesome. That is the perfect description for a film like this. But it's even crazier than that. And, uh, you know, there are supernatural elements depicted here in ways that you have never before this and never will after this see them depicted. So if you want to see a girl being eaten by a piano. You can see that in this film. (laughs) Uh, There are just images here that are not available to you anywhere else. And so while some people might find this a bit too much for me, um, this is an absolute must see film. I think it is in its own weird way, a masterpiece. I don't think anyone else could have or should have ever attempted to make a film like this. And so um, it's a singular experience and one that I recommend to everybody. A very good friend of mine named Terry loves that movie and he's championed it for years. uh, And I've let him down because I have not watched it, but I I feel like I definitely need to. And I also need to point out, Josh, I love that you don't love trippy movies yet. You have two (laughs) on your top (laughs) 10 list. In the first, in the first, what four? Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, let's sort of say Blue Sunshine actually isn't a trippy movie. I oh, think I expected you, you a trippy ex- movie. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, film. that's fair. That's fair. Gotcha, gotcha. But you did pick what you claim might be the trippiest of all the trippy movies of all time. But that's the thing. This this is done well. I yeah. think there's something. This doesn't have a hippie aesthetic, which I think is what I'm actually reacting to more than the psychedelic imagery gotcha i think they're almost like a dated quality to i think a lot of those movies they feel a lot of times to me anyway very dated so yeah that might be part of the issue well there was somebody who had said they could do a drinking game by what i'm about to say that every time i say this take a shot i own this on criterion blu-ray but i haven't seen it yet <laughs> and if you get alcohol poisoning please immediately get <laughs> to your local yes. hospital <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to make it a drinking game too often no. because yeah, you're you're gonna you're gonna end up in uh, in meetings uh, once a week in a community center. <laughs> you know, guys, I feel like I would say we have to cover this film as soon as possible, but I can't think of a themed episode on which we could po- other than we just are. simply yeah, Japanese cinema. That would yeah, be the yeah. thing. I would love and, to. And there's plenty to do. There's plenty we could do out there. I would yeah. love that. That'd be fantastic. Awesome. All right. So, what's your number six, Dave? A movie that is actually a. I guess technically a remake, although I don't think it's a straight up remake. I absolutely love the original. The original would make my top 10 for that decade, but this is my favorite version of it. And it it is is. invasion of the body snatch. Beautiful. That's a great movie. The the scary version, I guess of the original and the original is, is scary. 
But this one, I think, sort of trumps it with the imagery. I can never get that damn dog out oh, of my I mind. Comes up with that face, with oh, the human so face. The how the movie ends is very bleak. It's it's just a very it's a very dark movie, and I think the performances are wonderful. You have Donald Sutherland and uh, Leonard Nimoy gives a very interesting performance in this as he well. He really does, yeah. You know, and I think just to set it up, um, there are some people who are noticing that their neighbors and their friends are acting differently, and it might have something to do with the fact that they are being transformed by these pods, that the real person is no more, and now they have been taken over by a copy, a duplicate of them, sprung from these alien pods that may have come across the universe. Uh, and oh, and Jeff Goldblum also is, is in this movie, and he's always interesting, in my opinion. Uh, so this is... This is my favorite version of the story. As much as I love the original, and I do love the original, this, I would say, if anyone asked, what, what is your favorite version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? It would be this 70s version. I love this movie as well. It, it didn't make my list, uh, probably because the 1956 version is in my top 10 of all time. But um, I, I like Body Snatcher movies generally are among my favorite of the horror subgenres. And from... I even like Invasion, that version of uh, The Faculty, any kind of body snatcher movie. And this is one of the best, for sure. Um, personally, I can't beat 56. Right. And that's understood. Like, I love the 50s version as well. That, that's would make, that is on my top 10 for the, for the 50s. If we ever get around to that, I, that's sort of a mild spoiler, although not really. Um, and that is a, 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 just a classic as well. But this is the version I always think of when I hear invasion of the bodies yeah i i will second that it almost made my list to be honest with you dave so yeah i can't even now you've said it all in that dog my god that dog that is <laughs> it's so unsettling yes <laughs> all right so my number six pick i hope no one will think is cheating because technically it started as a tv movie so i get we never the parameters were not given to me that it couldn't be and it's not what you think dave not yet at any rate. Um, it, 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 is, it is a TV movie. It is from 1971. And it is a movie from my, and I'm sure I'm not original in saying this, my overall favorite director of all time, Steven Spielberg. And it is Duel. I, Interesting. Nice. I love this movie. Um, I, I saw this in my late teens. My dad had talked it up for years. I think I actually the first got it on Laserdisc because that was how I finally was able to see it because uh, for whatever reason I could never find it on VHS and it just so this you know late I'm in my late teens I finally saw it and it was around that time that I was getting big into you know wanting to be Mr. Indie Filmmaker and so because of this and because I was so desperately like in a Dawson uh, from Dawson's Creek sort of way wanting to be Spielberg that I decided that when I realized that this was written by this guy named Richard Matheson or based on his story I started devouring his stuff found I Am Legend and then saw that, you know, and I knew my dad was a huge fan of Omega Man. I ended up actually my very first feature length screenplay is completely on spec. I thought it would be great for a class in in my early, like my first year in college. I would write an entire like 115 page screenplay for I Am Legend. <laughs> so I, that's what wow. I did. And it was extraordinary. It was like probably re like to the point of being so faithful to the book as to be not good. Although I, uh, I got, I got an A on it. So, I mean, it wasn't horrible, but the point being <laughs> that I, that, so this movie has like a lot of like connotations for me, but it's a movie that every time I revisit, I enjoy the hell out of it. I love that it, I think to this day, if I'm not mistaken, I've heard Spielberg say he revisits this as sort of just being 
a movie that he knows that maybe it was because of the the time, the restraints, everything he was under, he had to, uh, you know, it's just like pure filmmaking. And it's, it, you know, I almost feel like the narration in it is unnecessary at times that, that they had, I know why they did it, right? They, they wanted to have some, otherwise it would just been this guy driving, but it still would have been intense and it still would have worked. I showed it to my kids. They loved it. So I, I just think it is a fun movie and it totally foreshadows uh, a couple of other key movies that he would go on to make um, that, that were super important as well. So that is why Duel from 1971, which did get theatrical re- release in Europe and I believe Australia, uh, is my my number six. Very awesome nice. Choice. Yeah, that's it. That's, I saw that on, on TV the first time at down at my grandparents. We were visiting my, well, they were watching us for the weekend. My parents were away and I remember sitting on the in the back porch which had originally been a deck and they had turned it into a sort of an enclosed room and sitting there watching this whole movie and, and just being mesmerized by it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Okay, we're going to take a brief break from our list before we move on to number five for some additional Halloween fun. We've put out a call for your spooky stories and we've had our first few submissions. Gather round the campfire, dear friends, as we hear this campfire tale. Hey guys, this is Jeffy O from West Texas. Long time fan of horror movie podcast. And I'm calling in to uh, let you guys know a little story that happened to me. Which kind of freaked me out, now that I think about it, looking back at it. And it actually happened about two weeks ago. The Friday the 13th, the September Friday the 13th. Me and my family, we usually have our... Halloween decorations out early. I'm talking about first day of September, early. Um, and we're probably the only people in my neighborhood that do so. On that particular Friday, yeah, I got home from work. My, my kids were in their room playing video games, and my wife was in the kitchen, and I was in the living room. So I noticed that the neighbor's dog started barking, so I looked through the window, and I saw somebody in my driveway. A gentleman, I was seeing his 40s, very unassuming, but he was kneeling down in my driveway. So at which point I decided to go to the spring door and open the wooden door to look out through the spring door. And I didn't say anything or do anything. I just kind of wanted to see how it it would play out. I at first thought it was a jogger that was like getting in a starting position because I live at the top of the cul-de-sac and just run down. But then I thought he was wearing sandals. So um, yeah, he wasn't jogging. So um, he stayed nearly down for about two minutes and then he walked towards my door. At which point, I never opened it, but I talked to him from behind my screen door. And the way my house is set up, or at least my door is set up, I can see him very clearly. He can't see me. So he goes, uh, he starts talking and saying, hey, good afternoon. Uh, and I was like, yes, how can I help you? And then he's like, well, I was just walking around the neighborhood. Mind you, I've never seen this guy. Me and my wife walk two, three times a day. I'll move. Um, so he said, um, yeah, I'm just walking through the neighborhood, and I noticed your Halloween decoration. And then he goes, kind of early, don't you think? And then I go, okay. And then he goes, yeah, I was just noticing, and I just wanted to know if you had some time to talk. And I say, no, if you need something, please let me know. If not, then thank you. Have a good afternoon. So which one he said, okay, thank you, and started walking out again. Now, he went back on my driveway and started kneeling again, at which point this time I go outside. So as I go outside, my wife follows behind me because she saw that there was somebody outside. Um, so I had a conversation with the gentleman. I was like, listen, sir, you're on 
my property, I'm asking you tonight if you can please get off my property. If you need anything, please let me know. If not, then please get off my property. And he goes and looks at me and he says, oh, well, you know, I just noticed that uh, your Halloween decorations were up and something called me about your house. And I asked him to please leave. He said, uh, no, I just wanted to talk to you and ask you about the sign that you have up front. So uh, we have a sign supporting one of our local Democrats here. Not a big deal. So at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this is probably religious Bible suffering people. So no big deal. So at which point he refused to leave. No, he's like, no, I just want to talk. That's what I'm here to do. I just want to talk to you. And at which point I started getting closer to him because I started getting agitated. At the same time, my neighbor gets there and he's a pretty menacing looking dude with a big beard. So um, I told this guy, if you need anything, please let me know if not get off my property one last time. And he goes, oh, okay, well then can I have a glass of water? And I put no. And then he puts, uh, and then he says, oh, okay. And at this point my neighbor's standing next to me. And he says, okay, well, God bless you. And then he just left. You know, sort of walking down the cul-de-sac. Okay, it was a little weird. Creepy vibe, I would say. But here's, here's the strange part. Here's where the story takes a turn. So I have one of those ring doorbells. And as far as I know, it's never malfunctioned before and since. But it failed to catch any interaction that I had with a gentleman, even though he rang my doorbell several times. And I tested it out before and after, and fine, still working fine, actually. So that was strange. So then I know that my neighbor, when we're out on the driveway, my neighbor has one of those same security cameras that oversee all the top of our cul-de-sac. It can clearly see my front backyard and everything. So I asked him, hey, can you review the uh, video? He said, yeah, sure. So he calls me up and says, hey, Jesse, you won't believe it. Come over. So I go over, and what had happened was that he caught us outside interacting with each other, talking to each other, but there was never another person there. Oh, and even talking about it, I'm getting goosebumps right now. There was never anybody there that we had this interaction with. And three adults were there, my neighbor, myself, and my wife. But it didn't catch on my ring camera, and it didn't catch on his security camera. So that's my story. Happened on Friday the 13th full moon, the weirdos were out probably. At first I thought it was just an interaction with just a person who wants to, you know, put his views on my beliefs and stuff like that. But, that doesn't explain the, the lack of evidence, so to say, in the camera. Thank you to Jamie for sharing that terrifying tale of woe. Next, we'll hear a campfire tale from Chris Excess. Hey, you guys. This is uh, Chris Excess also known as Maps, also known as Christian Leon. Longtime friends of the show, I'm calling uh, to leave a little brief uh, story, scary story that happened to me last winter. So basically what happened was I went to Brooklyn to shoot a documentary with a friend. Um, the documentary is uh, Mac and Cheese, The Road to Queso. And while being in Brooklyn, we went to a cemetery and I bumped into two dolls. Being the crazy person I am, I took one of the dolls home back to Rochester and uh, very strange started to happen to me. The first uh, scary thing that happened after I came back with the doll uh, was that the videos I took of the dolls 
back in Brooklyn at the cemetery would not open. Those files could not be opened. Uh, you click on them and it says, fail to play back, cannot open file. I sent the files to a company in LA and sent them a lot of money so that they could help me uh, open them and they couldn't do it. So I was like, oh, maybe the doll is cursed. And so more started happening and I ended up thinking, well, why not making a movie about it? The movie I'm working on right now called Doll, about this girl that finds some dolls and starts to happen to her. And ultimately I decided that it was stupid and stopped happening. So, I don't know, I guess you can give power to things. Uh, the power of suggestion is really great. Or maybe some is cursed. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Anyways, I cannot wait to hear uh, other listeners' stories. Long live the horror movie podcast. The best podcast about horror movies. Thank you to Chris and Jamie for those horrific submissions. Both Chris and Jamie will receive a brand new Campfire Tales sticker that was designed by HMP listener Joshua Bellis. They can also have their pick between a special Campfire Tales t-shirt or their own copy of one of the films discussed on tonight's show. We want to hear your seasonal spooky stories as well. To submit your Campfire Tales for the show, send us a pre-recorded audio file to horrormoviecast at gmail.com. That's horrormoviecast at gmail.com. Or leave a voicemail or two at the Retro Movie Geek Hotline, 484-577-3876. That's 484-577-3876. While we're in this mode, if you guys don't mind really quick, I want to tell the listeners about two other really cool things we have going on. First of all, we have our 31 Days of Halloween, where we're doing written reviews Every day of the month that we're posting on the blog at horrormoviepodcast.com. So in between our audio content, you can go and check out some written content. That's also from our listeners. So we're taking listener submissions for the 31 Days of Halloween written reviews. Just send your submissions to horrormoviecast at gmail.com and your written review could be selected to be posted on the site. Now go ahead and check out the ones that have been posted there already so you can see kind of the format we're going for. No spoilers if possible. Definitely let us know if there is a spoiler so we can give a proper spoiler warning. And I'm going to be giving away something every single one of these episodes drawn from people who are participating over the 31 days of Halloween. So you could be someone who wrote a review. You could be someone who just stopped in to leave a comment about the written review. You could be someone especially we want to see you share your lists of the films you're watching this month. Or even if you don't have a list prepared, like a lot of people do, you could still stop in and say, Hey, tonight I watched Three From Hell and here's my mini review. Like That's the kind of thing we're looking for. I'm going to do one giveaway each episode this October from people who participate. It's our participation trophy. Because, honestly, participation's harder than people give it credit for, I think. Because it's just October 1st as we're recording this, and because there's only been one 31 Days of Halloween post, the qualifying people are only the people who posted on October 1st. And the prize is a mug that I posted on Twitter. It's a picture of Michael Myers, and it says, Every day is Halloween. And I just saw it at the grocery store and posted an image of it on Twitter, and a lot of people seemed to like it. So I thought, hey, what the heck, I'll pick it up and we'll do it as a giveaway on the show. It's a cool mug. It's all black, Michael Myers. 
Every day is Halloween. I'm going to reach into the hat here and pick out... Sal Roma is the winner of this beautiful mug. So Sal, get in touch at horrormoviepodcast.gmail.com. But let us know the best shipping address to get you this mug. If you want to be eligible for prizes in the future, which will include stuff like this mug as well as DVDs. We already have a stack here. Listener Raul donated some DVDs and Blu-rays for giveaway. Make sure you're participating on the 31 Days of Halloween at HorrorMoviePodcast.com. And now, we'll get back to our top 10 horror movies of the 1970s. Alright, Wolfman, what is your number five? We're getting into the top five. Alright, my number five is a divisive film, actually. Uh, Some people love this, some people hate it. This is uh, my favorite Donald Sutherland performance, and that is taking into account both Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which are two of my other favorite films. Uh, This is Don't Look Now from 1973. I think this is a true horror masterpiece. I understand why people hate it. The first time I watched it, when it ended, I just went, huh? (laughs) I just had no idea what I had just seen. Uh, But I think over the years watching it over and over again, you know, it was really, I, I saw it the first time I was just kind of like, that that was kind of disappointing. And I had a friend whose opinion I really respect, uh, who's a playwright. And he said, yeah, this is my favorite film of all time of any genre. Wow. And I was just like, what? Don't look now. <laughs> like that, that movie was kind of a, a letdown. And so I, I went back and revisited it a few years later and I was just mesmerized by it. And it, it, it's a film that, puts a lot on the audience. You have to be ready, willing, and able to go in wanting to decode this movie. The information is there, but it's not like, it's not, it's not strong evidence. There is evidence and it's all throughout the film uh, to create several different rewarding viewings, but it's not laid out for you by any stretch of the imagination. And I think if you're willing to go into it and trying to decode what this movie could possibly mean, you'll really enjoy it. I think, I think it's not that enjoyable on a surface level. If you just go watch it, that was definitely my experience. But if, if you're willing to go in there, kind of do your end of the bargain, put your effort into it uh, as much as they have, then I think you'll walk away feeling very rewarded. I've seen this once. And I know I need to see it again, but I liked it the first time I saw it, but I don't know that I fully grasped it. And I think it's, you know, from what you were, what you were talking about, I have to, uh, I have to go back and watch it again. For me, it almost has like a David Lynchian quality to it, except for, I think there's more in the subtext than Lynch usually gives you, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think Lynch sometimes doesn't care if there's a decoder ring for his films, right? you know, (laughs) and I feel like this film gives you all of that material you need. And I didn't mention Julie Christie, but she's also in the film and is very good. But this is really Donald Sutherland carries this movie. So I have to say, one of my deep personal horror fan shames, I've never seen it. Well watch it twice. Yes. Watch it once, think about it. And then watch it again. And then watch it again. (laughs) Well it's interesting because every time I'm really glad I heard your review because I've gone to watch this a couple times at, at least twice. That I was intending to watch it. I had it like in a, it was in a situation where I could, I think I even rented it from like early days of Netflix when it you know, was coming through the mail, but then you'd get it and it would sit on your TV for two weeks. And you remember that, that when you do that? And yeah. I 
wanted to watch it. And for and I'd heard like people talking it up, talking it up. So based on what you just told me, though, I am really, really glad I didn't watch it because I probably wouldn't have liked it. Not that I mean, I like Lynch. I like a lot of his stuff uh, or that I like that type of weird, you know, kind of you like what the hell's going on kind of movie sometimes if I'm in the mood for it and I'm expecting it. But I think the way it was always presented to me was as movie is very upsetting and that it was scary. So I was like, oh, I'm in. But now the way you've described it, I'm going to kind of have that in my head, which I think will help. I think it'll help me digest it. Yeah, I, I think so. And and there's a beautiful Criterion release of this film that I would recommend people check out after they've seen the movie once. Maybe rent it the first time. <laughs> think about it. If you think you want to dive into it again, buy the Criterion Blu-ray. Okay, I like that. All right, excellent. Dave, what is your number five? My number five is one of the movies that cost uh, Joel one of his honorable mentions, and it is Black Christmas. <laughs> ah, yes. Nice. Now, we did discuss this one uh, sort of in detail in episode five, which was our first ever HMP Christmas episode. I don't know that it was called the HMP Christmas episode at the time, but episode five where we discussed Black Christmas and I think, what was it, Silent Night, Bloody Night? Yeah, yeah. At the time, I don't think we had decided that we were going to do an annual Christmas episode. So right, it's right. Kind of just That's... a Frankensteinian episode with a few Christmas movies thrown in. Exactly. So I'm not going to go into it too, too much. The setup is there is a killer um, hiding, and this is not a spoiler. They kind of give you this uh, early on. He's sort of hiding out in a girl's dorm house on a college campus, biding his time. He manages to take one out and then uh, then another, but biding his time, he's really after all of the girls in this dorm. It includes Olivia Hussey, it includes uh, younger Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin, more known for comedies in the, uh, the Second City group. Uh, it's an interesting cast. John Saxon uh, is in it, plays, uh, plays a, I guess, a detective in the movie. Bob Clark directed it, and it is a very early slasher. Uh, but I think what really gets me about this is the, the suspense that it builds, the anticipation of the inevitable, where we know something that they don't know, and they're just sort of taking life as it goes, and we're like, get the hell out of there. And they're not going to, so we know what's going to eventually happen. And that's where the real suspense in the movie occurs until they finally figure out what's going on. And even then, there's no real safety for, for some of these girls, uh, unfortunately. So this is one I think you definitely should see it at, around the holidays if you haven't seen it before. But even if it's not the holiday season, definitely check out Black Christmas. 100 million percent back you up i i love this the more i see this movie the more i love it and i think this is a great christmas time double feature with bob clark's other sort of ubiquitous christmas movie which is a christmas story right because right. there are interesting parallels because if i remember correctly christmas story ends visually just the, the final moments of the credits and everything in a very similar way to black christmas <laughs> so i don't know if that was intentional or not <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's like a good 10 years between them or close to that. So um, we actually covered this on Forgotten Flicks, I think episode 46. So this is going way back to one of the early episodes of Forgotten Flicks. But uh, I know that Jason and I, Jason Grooms and I both loved this movie. And I had seen it for the first time, I think actually that first year of college. And it's another one that my parents had always told me that there were 
two movies, my dad especially, that actually scared him really bad as an adult in the theater. Black Christmas was one of them. I'm not going to say what the other one is because it may or may not be on my list. So, uh, but Black, Black Christmas was one of those. So as a kid, you know, your dad, you know, oh, my strong dad who doesn't seem scared of anything. You know, said so these were the two movies that actually really scared him. And uh, and yeah, Black Christmas is an absolute classic. Yeah, so I was going to say Joel did praise this film up and down on HMP episode 169 when he did his top 10 list. As Dave mentioned, this was on HMP episode five. On that episode, we did cover a fair number of snowy movies. We did Dead Snow, we did Devil's Pass, and then yes, we did Sandlot Night, Deadly Night. Oh, Deadly Night! I keep, Night. I keep getting that. You know what? Because it's an '80s slasher, I always just assume that's the Sandlot Night, Bloody Night. I don't know why, but you're right. <laughs> Sandlot Night, Deadly Night, and Black Christmas. Well, we have done Sandlot Night, Bloody Night on another Christmas episode. But okay. All right. All right. So my number five is a movie that I'm pretty confident Wolfman is not a huge fan of, but I love him anyway, because I also love, with all of my poor shriveled heart, 1977's The Hills Have Eyes. Awesome. <laughs> yes. I, I don't want to put that movie down. It's just not one of my faves. I know it's not. I, and, I, and I get why, and I honestly, I, I don't know what it is about Craven and his aesthetic, and just there, there's something about his movies. He's honestly up there I, I have to depending on my mood it's like is it he or carpenter who are my my favorite you know horror filmmaker i mean you know it's it's like i always have to battle that um i just love his stuff and i love this movie i totally get why it might be too ugly for some for some i, I get it like I, I totally see it but i just i love it and i'm super excited because i think we talked about this during the crawl review that uh, i had not seen the remake yet but I finally, and I'm not going to give anything away. I did see High Tension. I'm, I'm getting my, my Aja films done. And uh, I have this on my queue as to watch here very soon, the the remake. So, oh, nice. Yeah, so after watching the trailer, I was like, you know what? I am totally down for this now. I, I feel, you know, I'm out of sort of the, you know, dealing with little itty bitty baby kids. And maybe I've, you know, I, I don't know what it is when you have like little babies and like seeing like hyper violent things. I don't know. It, for me at the time, it just kind of would bug me. So I was like, eh, maybe I'll get to it when I, but now I'm like, yeah, I'm back in. Let's do it. Maybe it's because my kids are getting closer to being teenagers. So I'm like, yeah, bloodlust. So <laughs> Hills Have Eyes. Uh, from 1977, about a family on their way to California. I'm reading the IMDb version. Uh, a family has the misfortune, yeah, you can say that, to have their car break down in an area close to the public, which they leave out the part. It's because that area was used for nuclear testing and inhabited by violent savages ready to attack. And uh, it starts the great Michael Berryman. It's very early Craven. It's, you know, right after he did, uh, well, not right after, but he had done Last House on the Left. I think he had done some TV stuff maybe in between there. I feel like he did. But yeah, it was uh, very early Craven. And it's just, a, I love it because how, when you, are, when you know about Craven's backstory as a professor, and, and the ideas in this movie about the civilized family being slowly devolving to to a level so that they can then take on the supposed feral people. I just just a lot. There's a lot of ideas in it that I just find very interesting. So uh, that is why The Hills Have Eyes from 1977 is my number five. All right, Wolfman, you ready to hit us with number four? We're getting close to those top three. Yeah, my number four is one of my favorite films of all time. It's uh, one of the best kind of haunted house movies ever made. This is one of those films like a Jaws that I was well aware of before I ever saw it because it's so often 
referenced in popular culture that I had, I had just, uh, it was kind of in the ether, you know, there were a lot of, there are a lot of horror films like that for me as a kid that is just kind of, you knew about. And the Amityville horror was one that, you know, I, the first time I saw it, I had been told this is a true story and that scared the living crap out of me. I had never (laughs) been so horrified watching a movie as I was the first time I watched the Amityville horror. Love this movie. I actually really enjoy the Ryan Reynolds remake of this film as well. I'd love to do a versus episode sometime with these two films. And I think my appreciation for this has just grown over the years due to the Ryan Reynolds remake, due to the conjuring universe existing. My interest in this was peaked again. The documentaries that have been made about the true story. There's the my Amityville horror documentary. It just doesn't get any better than this for me as a haunted house. Excellent movie. And and you know what? I'm down for doing a a versus as opposed to a franchise for Amityville horror, because I don't know that as a franchise, (laughs) it's really all that good. Um, But I'd like the Ryan, I like the Ryan Reynolds as well. So I think a versus would be the perfect way to go for this one. Unfortunately, uh, this just left Amazon prime on September 1st, or else I'd be telling everyone to run out and watch it there. But um, definitely get a hold of this film. If you haven't seen it. Yeah, I want to back you, Josh. It's worth, yeah. Yeah, I re- I want to back you because this movie is one of those that I saw on network TV, so edited for TV as a kid, and it freaked me out. Just even the pro, I remember the promos for it, and it was when the when the window just slams down on the kid's fingers, and it just, just even that just freaked me out. The music is creepy. Uh, everything about it's creepy when you know the actual crime that happened in that house. Like, forget all the other stuff, right? That whether you believe that stuff or not the actual crime that happened there. I mean, that alone would have kept me the, like uh, miles away from that place. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in it, <laughs> let, let alone, you know, what, what a great deal. Yeah, there's a reason why it's a great deal, kids. Uh, and honestly, I will say that I don't remember hating the remake. So I would definitely be down for it because I would like to revisit it because I don't remember a lot about it. My sense of it was that I was like, yeah, but I would like to revisit it now because it's been with that 2006 or so. Is that when that came out? Somewhere around somewhere there. there. Some mid 2000s. So it's been, you know, well over 10 years, almost 15 years. I would be really interested to revisit it, uh, you know, kind of fresh. And now Ryan Reynolds being sort of established as he is. And it would just be kind of fun, I think, to, to really examine that. Plus, it's been a while since I've seen the original, but I do have a real fondness for that movie as well. And I will tell you. It's got a almost like a kind of gritty, dirty quality to it. But I think part two is pretty good as well, because part two tries to incorporate more of what originally happened uh, with the whole family dynamic. Burt Young, I believe, is in part two. Diane Franklin. So uh, part two is worth it. Three is fun in that real cheesy, campy, you know, when everyone was trying to do 3D in the early 80s kind of way. And then after that, they definitely start tapering off. Though I think I've seen at least one or two of the straight to video. They're still making Amityville movies. Yeah, I saw the most recent one and I was not a fan of it. Is that the one with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee? Was she in that one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bella Thorne is the star of it, though. Jennifer Jason Lee is just a minor. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, there's there's one that even came out this year, The Amityville Murders. Oh, okay. And oh, you wow. know it's not going to be much because the poster is once again a house floating with the ground, like it's up in the air with the ground underneath it. How many posters are we going to get of this, of a house with the ground still attached, floating? I mean, I can point to about half a dozen that I've seen in the last three years. So 
So right there, they can't even make an original poster for the damn thing. I, I'm not real hopeful <laughs> for it, but I think that's just came out this year. I do want to say one of the elements that works really well about the original film is the score, and it was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe for Best Original Score. Do you happen to know who did it? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Lilo yeah. Schifrin? Yes. We have an Amity Township very close to where we live here in Pennsylvania. And when we were driving back from somewhere, I had sort of said to the kids, hey, Amity, this is this is where that house is, knowing it wasn't. <laughs> just to sort of get a rise out of them. And it, it gets real quiet in the back seat. And then a few minutes later, my one son says, are we out of there yet? <laughs> um, but to, to be honest, my wife kind of diffused the whole thing by saying, don't worry, guys, that's not where the house is. If it was really here, your father would push you out of the way to get out of there. <laughs> so uh, it kind of uh, made them laugh and diffuse the whole situation that I had worked so hard. Hard to build up. <laughs> Great pick. Speaking of picks, Dave, do you have a number four? I do have a number four, and uh, we're going down under for the movie Long Weekend Ooh. from 1978. Uh, this is one that we did cover in our Horror Down Under episode. It was in my top five from episode 96, that was, of HMP. Uh, we had covered this. This is uh, really a man against nature. Uh, but when man uh, is clearly, you know, very much in the wrong, this is about a couple. They're having marital issues. They decide to go camping for the weekend. They go to the secluded beach, set up a tent, and then proceed to abuse the natural world in, in every way possible. And <laughs> the natural world decides to get back at them. So this is one where you're actually not rooting for the leads. They're not very likable, uh, but still two very strong performances by uh, Brianne B. Hetz, I think, plays the wife, and John Hargraves, the late John Hargraves, plays uh, the husband in this film. And I really liked how nature took its revenge against these two adults. And there's one thing in, in, involving a manatee that sort of plays out over the last half of the movie that uh, just sends shivers up my spine every time, uh, every time I see it, just for the way that it builds. And it, does, it seems like the inevitable is going to happen no matter what this couple does. It's not like there's a ton of suspense, but there is suspense in how is it going to play out, I think. And this is, it's a raw movie. There's a scene at the beginning with uh, a dead kangaroo. It's something that animal lovers may have a hard time Portions of it may have a hard time watching the movie, but I think they're going to love the second half of this. The movie is on your side, animal lovers. Yes, it is. The movie is definitely on your side. Uh, and it's one that I, I, I recommend. I'm not sure where it's available, but if you can find it, Long Weekend 1978 from Australia is well worth the watch. And be careful because there was a remake of this film, which was also fine. It was, dec- it was, all- it was good, but it wasn't the original. Uh, Dave, you also reviewed this in full about a year ago on our summer vacation horror episode that we did for Movie Podcast Network oh. patrons. So for the low, low price of $2.50, people can unlock that and the other premium episodes. Nice. Yeah, I've heard of this movie. I have never seen it, but just describing what you described, I'm going to. I'm, I'm adding, I'm literally writing these down. <laughs> They're like, these are, the, these are the five to 10 movies I need to get on quick. And I'm looking and it looks like Long Weekend 1978 is available on Amazon Prime. Oh, is it? Currently. Great. Oh, that's awesome. I know what I'll be watching. Yeah. Nice. If people want to check that out, as is the 2008 remake, which again, not as strong, 
but kind of fun with Jim Caviezel is the star of that. Okay. All right. So for my number four pick, it is a movie that honestly needs no introduction. I'm I'm pretty much going to say that about all my top four. (laughs) They are movies that everyone is very familiar with. But going back to that criteria that I put on myself by way of Dave, by way of Roger Ebert. These are movies that if I never could see them again, I probably would cry. I, they're par- a part of me would break inside. So this movie is from 1978, or, and it is 79 if we're going with the USA release, I believe, if IMDb is to be believed. Uh, it is a classic. It needs literally no introduction. It is George A. Ramiro's. Dawn of the Dead. Awesome. Yep. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I was like, I, what else do you say? I'm done. And just drop the mic and walk away. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there's some movies where you go, do I really have to explain why <laughs> this would be my top five of all time for this yeah, right. decade? Yeah, it, it is. If you aren't familiar with it, uh, of course, it was re- a remake in 2004, of which I enjoyed, but I am not nearly as big a fan as I am of this movie. Um, it, it, you know, these gr- small group of survivors. Uh, take up in a, a mall during the a zombie apocalypse and they have to fight for survival. Ken Foray is in it and uh, obviously Ramiro wrote, directed it. Savini did the effects. It's just a classic. It is a movie that when I was around 13-ish, I convinced my grandmother who I was very close to, I loved her dearly. Um, she was someone who had my mom in, my mom was born in the very early fifties and my grandmother at the time was in her early forties, right? So there's a pretty big generational gap there. And so growing up as a teenager, I was the only boy amongst all her grandchildren and she and I just had this, this bond, you know, she just, she loved me and she would, you know, like she was the one, like I quote unquote <coughs> felt sick and I would be like, Hey, me mom. Yeah, I'm in school, but I don't feel good. Could you come get me? Oh, you'll be here in five minutes. Great. <laughs> so she was that she was that grandma. And she would she would take me to the public library, you know, we could go get some books or whatever. And they always had a pretty good video selection in the St. Pete Public Library. And I around 13, 14 years old, I'm starting to get more and more into the horror world and, and a little more intense stuff. And I had heard of this movie called Road Warrior, of course, and a movie called Dawn of the Dead. And they had both. And they had Dawn of the Dead uncut. And I remember at the time just said, telling her, yeah, I, yeah, I want to get these. And like, I didn't tell her what they were called. She didn't ask. She just assumed I wasn't handing her something that if she had known what I was watching, she probably would have lost her mind. And uh, I went into uh, my room where I had my little VCR and, uh, you know, 13 inch TV or whatever it was combo. And uh, I, my life was changed. That was I just remember sitting there and being both horrified because I'd never, I think at that point, I had seen a couple of pretty intense movies uh, at that point, but I think most of the time I would have completely covered my eyes and turned away. I feel like this may have been the first time that I watched that I didn't turn away. And, you know, I was like kind of squinting, but you know, you're still watching. And I just remember being utterly mesmerized. And I will say there is just something about that idea of being, to this day, I just will like walk through a like one of those big warehouse type stores or, or any mall and just think to myself like strategically, how would I lock this place down? And and there's just something I don't know oddly uh, exciting and exhilarating to me about the idea of being the only ones left and you've got like the whole mall to yourself. And I, and it really like probably contradicts Ramiro's message <laughs> with the movie, but I don't know. There's just something about that I always just found very exhilarating. Uh, and uh, I love this movie, Dawn of the Dead. It's a good one. It's it's my number two. Yeah, my number two horror film of all time. Yeah, I you know I'm I'm with you. It's it's a masterpiece. It is 100. All right, Josh, you ready for your number three? 
Yeah, my number three is a film we've talked about kind of a lot recently and one that's going to be coming up on a versus episode that I'm very much looking forward to. It's 1974's The Wicker Man, directed by Robin Hardy. This is one of my all-time favorite Christopher Lee roles, which is saying a lot as a big Dracula fan. Uh, Edward Woodward here as Sergeant Howie is extremely good. I love the feeling of this small island summer isle and uh, you know the everyone is in on it it's actually similar to that highway of horrors idea that we talked about of going to the small town and kind of there's no one outsiders to help you and everyone around you is in on whatever's going on and i love that feeling i think this is more fun than a lot of those highway films because it is such an idyllic location and you have all of these kind of pagan ritual and everything tied into it um, the basic premise here from IMDb is a police sergeant is sent to a Scottish island village in search of a missing girl who the townsfolk claim never existed. Stranger still are the rights that take place there. Um, yeah, I can't wait to discuss this movie in full. And it is my number three, The Wicker Man. Check it out. Beautiful. I am super excited because as we discussed during the Midsommar review, I have not seen this and I am, I have not seen the remake either. And I am super duper excited for us to cover this. Um, I'm really looking forward so to it. So excited. Yeah, that's going to be fun. That'll be great. So, Dave, what is your number three? My number three is a movie that um, it might sound like it might be part comedy, the way the director himself of this film described it. It is described his creatures as his flower pot men, but it is a brutal, unflinching movie from 1979 director lucio fulci's zombie let me set it up real quick a boat pulls into new york harbor uh, with a zombie aboard and it causes some uh chaos and as a result a reporter played by ian mccullough and the other pharaoh sister Anne, she's worried because her father was part of this ship's crew uh, that, that initially left three months earlier and he was not aboard or his body was not aboard when it came back. So they set off to find him uh, with a few other people. They set off on a small boat to go to an island, the island of Matosi, where they find is, is been overrun by the living dead. They escape to a hospital run by Dr. David Menard, played by Richard Johnson, very interesting uh, Shakespearean actor who was in a lot of these uh, Italian horror films around this time. Uh, he's been trying to find a cure for this quote-unquote disease that is bringing the dead back to life, but things don't go quite uh, as planned. There's so many iconic images in this. You have a zombie fighting a shark. You have the infamous eye-gouging scene. And I love the opening sequence uh, where the ship is in New York and the music in this. That's just sort of boom, 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 pounding music that plays throughout this movie. The zombies are very interesting looking they're very gross and the carnage that they unleash is disgusting at times i mean it is uh this is fulci at his most fulci i don't know how else to put it uh like this and uh, uh for me you know this this is him with with like really showing us what he can do uh with gore i mean new york ripper is, is up there as well as far as gory Gory films and and uh, and so is this one and of course the Gates of Hell trilogy has its moments as well, but it's also I think an interesting story, and I think that this is Fulci at the top of his game. So yeah, this this is one that I can 
pop in any time, regardless of how much it turns my stomach at moments. Uh, 1979 zombie. Very nice. Yes. I, I want to just throw in there. I haven't seen a lot of Fulci. I saw most of zombie when I was like, in my, I think it was in my late teens. And the only other Fulci movie that I'm, I know I've seen, and it's because of you guys was for the gates of hell trilogy. What's the first one? City of the living city dead. of the living dead. Yes. I did watch that. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it for what it was. I kind of feel like I my reaction to Fulci movies may be very much akin to Wolfman's reaction to movies like Hills Have Eyes or Chainsaw Man, where you just, eh, <laughs> I just, I, 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 I don't know. And because I, I even tried uh, watching the trailer for Cat in the Brain, I believe it is, and uh, yeah. not not my cup of tea, got to be honest. Oh, there, there's, there's some Fulci that is downright unwatchable, especially his later stuff. He did yeah. a movie called Demonia. Which the most interesting scene is a guy is killed uh, with a spear gun by a topless female ghost that suddenly appears in the room, grabs the gun, and shoots him. Um, That's probably the most interesting scene. Other than that, I'm watching this movie, and I'm just getting more and more frustrated. So, Fulci definitely had his stinkers as well. Yeah. Uh, but when he was on in the in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, I would say um, he was amazing. It's an acquired taste, but I would say Zombie is a lot more accessible than any of the sure. Gates of Hell trilogy sure. films by a long shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would agree. I'm I'm a big fan of the Beyond too. Uh, I like the whole Gates of Hell trilogy actually, uh, but um, yeah, Zombie I think might be might be his best film. I like Gates of Hell trilogy too. I'm just saying I think for someone who maybe those films are a bit much, I think you can watch Zombie. I think it has more of a mainstream appeal, I guess. I agree. I, I agree with you. Yep, absolutely. All right. So my number three is, wait for it, a movie that needs no introduction. <laughs> it is a classic. It is upsetting, disturbing. It supposedly had people running up the aisles and puking in the lobby. It is the one and only Exorcist from 1973. Hmm. A movie that was so hard. I honestly, this one was probably the one that I battled with the most about putting on my top 10 list. And, and also when not my number two, which we'll get to, but I battled because this, this movie is one of my all time favorite movies. And I really, this is true of all three, uh, most, a lot of the movies on here, but the first, certainly my top three of this list that we're creating these are some of my favorite movies ever. And when I originally created my HMP top 10 list, I remember thinking, well, there's a lot of movies I wanted to include that honestly, like The Exorcist, I probably love more maybe in some ways or appreciate more in some ways than one of these other movies. But those movies, they were, it was like even more than that for me. It was like it was something like it had a real personal connection or something like that. The Exorcist, though, does as well because this is another movie that I remember hearing my like rumblings, like people talking about, this is one of those movies where I remember being at summer camp and kids that were slightly older than me were telling the younger kids about movies they had seen. And it was this one alligator. And I think it may have been changed on massacre that I heard they would talk about. And I, and I, you didn't know. So you were just, you, they would tell you just key disturbing moments. And as a kid, you're filling in the blanks and you're creeped out beyond belief. And so I finally saw it. Uh, I love it. I find it. It's an upsetting movie, yet it doesn't, I get why it really, really upsets some people, but for whatever reason, I find it endlessly watchable. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I don't feel like gross afterwards or like, I can't, you know, take it. I really always find it a very cathartic experience watching this movie. And uh, I, 
remember when I think it was in it was early 2000s, late 90s, somewhere in there, they did a re-release. And that was the one where they added like the spider walk scene down the stairs and all that. And they and I got to see it right. on the big screen. And it it's one of those movies, you know, seeing it on the big screen does have an impact. It was just great. I think I still have the poster from when it was released then. And uh, it's just fantastic. They did a TV show based on, you know, called The Exorcist that came out a year or so ago. Do you guys, did you, either of you ever check that out? No. It was, it was only two no, seasons. Yeah, two seasons. Uh, Gina Davis was in season one. Hmm. I, I am so ticked off that they never, apparently it canceled after the second season. It's about two priests that, and it, it it's called The Exorcist. And there are tie-ins it's not necessarily direct right but there are connections and it was a really cool show out of anybody out there listening if you saw it uh john cho from uh, searching and the star trek movies and harold kumar mm -hmm. right he was in season two and it's good i heard great things about it i loved it I, my wife and i both we loved it she's a huge fan of the exorcist as well uh we we both are we both love this movie um yeah i i can't i mean what is there to say little girl possessed by Pazuzu and hilarity ensues. I mean, it's just, it is just a brilliant movie that uh, uh, I can't praise enough. It's in my top, it's in my all time top 10. And this yeah. one cost me uh, an honorable mention, but it's, and I couldn't find where I discussed it other than back in episode two. I don't even know if I told this story. I mean, I was so shaken by this film when I saw it over my friend's house. My friend was like, well, his little brother who had to go to bed couldn't finish the movie. They had it on video, uh, wanted to watch it. And we were all sitting there going, yeah, let's watch it. And my friend who had seen it said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and we're all pushing him. So he finally agrees, but has a pillow in front of his face uh, through most of the movie. We even took it up to where his little brother had to leave and watched it from there. So we didn't even get the sort of calmer stuff at the beginning. We were thrown right into the mix. And I was so distraught. I wore a rosary around my neck for two months when I would go to bed. No and I remember, my, yes, it absolutely destroyed me. And I remember my mother came in and where it finally stopped where she goes, you can't wear that. You could choke yourself if you're, if you're rolling around. And I explained to her, well, I saw the exorcist and it really moved. So she sat down next to me. She tried to make a moment of it that if you're a good person, the devil won't invade you. The devil will not bother you. Don't worry about it. And I didn't have the heart to tell her, I'm not worried about the devil bothering me. I'm worried about him bothering you and you throwing me out that window. That's <laughs> what I'm afraid of. <laughs> well, and then you could have also pointed out, I'm pretty sure Reagan wasn't bad. <laughs> yeah, true. True. I don't think she ever saw the movie. I don't uh, think I my you. mother, that's not a movie she would, would have uh, I think she was taking my father to see the prime of Miss Jean Brody. Uh, ah. Maybe not around this time, but not too far before that. That so, almost made this it, list for me. That almost. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> so she was not, uh, she did not see The Exorcist. But I remember one night I was changing channels. I had a little TV in my room and it was about one in the morning and I just couldn't sleep. And I'm turning around. I saw about six seconds of The Exorcist and had to watch the entirety of a breakfast at Tiffany's to dispel that and get me back to sleep. <laughs> that is great. It's funny. I have a similar story in that I was a kid and I, and I think I high level knew about it because I maybe overheard my parents talking and my mom was folding clothes or something and she had the TV on. And uh, I remember again, early days of HBO or whatever it was. I'm pretty sure it may have been on network TV, but I feel like it might've been on uh, regular or uh, cable TV. And 
I walk in at just the right angle to where I could, and it was just an innocuous scene. I think I even remember the, it was it was a moment early on in the movie when uh, you know Reagan is there with her mom. It's before she shows her you know Captain Howdy and all that stuff, and they're in their living room. And I just remember seeing it and her. She realized I was in the room. And she freaked out. She said, get out of here. Go 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 <laughs> go. <laughs> I was like, what, 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 what am I saying? You know, so as a result, her reaction, <laughs> I always have like this Pavlovian response to the movie that her reaction to what seemed like completely, you know, this, a nothing moment just always freaked me out that she, I, she looked even though, and I think she had already seen it too on top of it. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, uh, this movie, I, I think it's just, it's an incredible film. It really is. I agree. I will say Dave, um, back, on episode 12 of horror movie podcast we did our top five scariest movies lists oh, and this was your number one and you discussed it at some length there. that was new yeah that was great all right josh what is numero dos my number two is the movie i'm most excited to talk about because i've never talked about it before i don't think and it's just one of those weird shit show of a movie (laughs) (laughs) like it shouldn't work everything about the way this movie is produced is like the worst (laughs) of what hollywood has to offer in terms of just like nine different writers nobody wants to direct it stars dropping out of it and coming back on board and uh but it somehow for me they managed to create just the stew <laughs> that that didn't have any singular artistic vision, but somehow came together to f- form what I think is one of the best movies of the seventies, the number two best movie of the seventies. In fact, um, this is the eyes of Laura Mars. Oh, nice. And so oh, wow. the story behind this really briefly is that John Carpenter wrote the original screenplay and it was set in the fashion world, but the killer in Carpenter's original script was kind of a random homeless person who didn't have any backstory or motivation. It was just a random killing, more similar in some ways to Halloween than anything else he's done. And the film was picked up by um, kind of famed Hollywood producer, John Peters, who was the guy who had started out as a Hollywood hairdresser, you know, he was Barbara Streisand's longtime boyfriend, producer, agent, manager, and hairdresser. And he went on to be one of the most successful producers in Hollywood history. But um, this was one of his earlier films and he picked up the script from John Carpenter, was really excited about it and wanted to go make it. And they could not get a director attached to it. They offered it to Irving Kirshner and he turned it down. They had Barbara Streisand originally attached to it, and she wrote a theme song for the movie. But then um, they decided to do a rewrite, and they brought in David Zella Goodman, who had written Straw Dogs and Logan's Run. And after he got finished with the script, Streisand said, this is a little too seedy. This is not the kind of film I want to do. So then Streisand drops out of the picture. So then they go back to the drawing board and they try to cast Jane Fonda and she turns it down and a few other actresses. And they finally settle on Faye Dunaway and she had just come off winning the Oscar for network and she agrees to do it. And suddenly because she's involved, everyone floods back to the project and Irvin Kirshner ends up directing the film and it, they get a young Tommy Lee Jones, a young Brad Dourif right after his performance in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And uh, they, 
come up with this really incredible horror thriller where uh, I'll go to the IMDb synopsis. A famous fashion photographer who is played by Faye Dunaway develops a disturbing ability to see through the eyes of a killer. And so she can kind of see these murders as they're taking place and they mirror the type of photography that she's doing, which is really marrying violence and sex in kind of the world of high fashion photography. So Kirshner was interested in this film because he wanted to make a movie about how the fashion industry is savaging women. And Carpenter wanted to just make a straight ahead stock and slash. And David Zella Goodman brought in kind of this romance element to it. And there were a bunch of other writers in between there that took shots at trying to make this movie into a vision that everyone could agree on. Eventually they go into production and they move the production from LA to New York and they can't agree on what the ending of this film is going to be. They have another writer writing during production. The guy who wrote Lenny is writing during production, trying to like figure out all these plot problems and everything that they're having and differences of vision. And so they get to the ending, they decide who the killer is going to be. And they, and Tommy Lee Jones, who plays the police detective, they basically say, uh, you're just going to have to write your end speech yourself. And so he <laughs> writes and improvises basically the entire end of the film <laughs> himself, Tommy Lee Jones, who at this time is not like a well-known actor. He's only done small films. This is not the Tommy Lee Jones. We know him as today, but yet he writes himself this big speech at the end of the movie that basically ties up all the loose ends. And somehow, all of that resulted in this just amazing, what I think is the best version of an American giallo that exists. I mean, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, obviously. That's interesting. Yeah, so I, this is a movie I recommend everyone check out. If you love Italian giallos, uh, you know, definitely this is one for you. This is completely in that spirit, but it's an American film. This led to Irvin Kirshner getting the opportunity to direct Empire Strikes Back because George Lucas saw an early cut of this and loved it and hired Kirshner to do Empire Strikes Back. If not for this movie, Kirshner probably never would have directed that film. So it's just a fascinating moment in American cinema, and I think it yielded shockingly a fantastic film as well it's interesting i saw this once and there were things i remembered about it i didn't care for it as much at first i didn't think faye dunaway convinced me as a fashion photographer hmm. um so i wasn't real impressed with her performance but brad dorf has not many scenes in this i know there's one brief scene he and i was a little disappointed he wasn't in more because you see yeah. brad dorf's scene in this movie and it convinced me he is one of the great unsung actors. He really yep. is so good in almost anything he does that he really does. He should have an Oscar by now, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think he was nominated for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was his, his, you know, his first role. But he should have it. He should have one. He was in. He is so good, and I have never seen Brad Dorf at least not be interesting in a movie. You know, even doing voice work in the Chucky series, he's always interesting. And his brief scene in this alone almost makes it worth seeing and yes it is an interesting film uh in the way that it builds up with the killer it was just fate dunaway and and i have to watch it again i have to admit i've only seen it once and i have to watch it again 
to see I, if I still feel that way on a second I understand deal. if people don't like it. It was a miserable failure at the box office. Um, I should, should, we should mention Raul Julia also makes an appearance in this film. But um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is... They had real... Uh, two super famous photographers who not only took the photos that Laura Mars is supposed to be taking in the film, but also kind of like um, were technical advisors on the movie. I think it's fascinating. If nothing else is a snapshot of New York at the time, I think that's interesting also, but then to weave in this kind of sleazy giallo romance that, you know, all of it would be super problematic by today's standards. I just love the way, what this movie is. It's just a rare gem i guess of the film that's awesome giallos are kind of a blind spot for me i'm starting to to correct that i hadn't seen as many giallos so maybe i didn't appreciate it uh like i would now now having a few more of them under my belt so uh i will i will go back and revisit this at some point after uh after wow number two i i definitely uh you're number two of the uh 70s i definitely want to watch it now yeah I, i mean i understand why i understand why people don't like it and i think it's you know, it's kind of that's why I wanted to put it in the spot, I guess, partially because I wanted to fight for it a little bit. No, I think that's fair, and I think mm. that, and I think that uh, this is a movie I have always is always been in my peripheral, always. And a good friend of mine, Gambo, who's been on my show a ton, he has pushed me to watch this movie, and I've never seen it. I've never, I and I don't, and I knew Carpenter that we contributed at least to the screenplay. I knew about all that, but. Based on that review, and I don't have nearly the depth of experience with giallos that you do, Josh, but I am experienced enough with them to know that I have always enjoyed them for what they are, and and I love mysteries, and I love detective-type stuff, so I am, again... I, I'm making up my list here of what I need to catch up on. And uh, honestly, if these episodes uh, turn out to be nothing more than just really wonderful fodder for me to continue to catch up on movies that I've been needing to do for a long time, I'll be happy. So this is awesome. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's the artistic Ooh. achievement of, like I say, Deep Red. And for me, my favorite giallo is actually Torso, which a lot of people don't like. Like also, it, like, But I wanted to include this one because I think it's just such a unique moment in cinema. I just, I don't know. It makes me happy. It's also, by the way, is streaming with the subscription on Amazon Prime currently. Um, so it's easy to watch. Awesome. Yeah, that. All right, Dave, you're number two. This is a movie that, uh, well, I don't think needs too much of an introduction. It is Ridley Scott's Alien, 1979. Arguably my favorite sci-fi horror film. Uh, as a matter of fact, I can't think of one that goes above it, so I will say it probably is my favorite sci-fi horror film. It's a dark movie in both its story and in the way it's presented. I think one of the main strengths, and I've said it, uh, I couldn't find where I said it before, actually, on an HMP. I couldn't even find it on Land of the Creeps where I discussed this movie before, but I know I've talked about it before. But this is uh, the Nostromo ship, I think, adds so much to this film. And I always go back to something that um, Ridley Scott had talked about. And he used actually Star Wars as a little bit of an inspiration for this movie because he said, you know, if you look at a movie like 2001 A Space Odyssey, space is wondrous and, and it's beautiful and you have these wonderful spaceships um, you know, floating through the air. Um, then you get to Star Wars that proved with something like the Millennium Falcon that you can have a jalopy in space that's, uh, that's not going to run all that, that well uh, and it's going to have its issues and you're never quite sure if it's going to hold together. Uh, he said when he got to doing his ship, 
you know, all of a sudden you, you have different types of characters in space, you know, like Han Solo and all in Star Wars. He said by the time he got to Alien, this is truck drivers in space. These, these guys are just straight up laborers. They're out there to do a job. They couldn't care anything about the wonders of space. They're just trying to get back home to get paid. And they get pulled into something that laborers should never be pulled into. Um, having to uh, investigate this planet where the, this alien species is. So there's that strength to it. Of course, it gave us uh, Ripley, probably one of the strongest, if not the strongest female characters in, in horror movie history. Uh, maybe not the strongest, but definitely in the conversation. Also, just some great moment. You have that one great moment at the when they're sitting around eating uh, with, with John Hurt that was spoofed in uh, by Mel Brooks and Spaceballs. It's just a film that I love to pop in every now and again. And it, yes, it's disturbing. And the design of the alien, of course, is, is another strength of this film. Um, but this is a movie that I could just sit down and watch. And, and it always comes down to what do you prefer, alien or aliens? I wouldn't want to live in a world where we'd have to have one and not the other because I love <laughs> aliens as well. But I think it's more action to me. And it's hard. No, I shouldn't say that. It is hard. But I think there's a lot of the strength of that movie for me are the action sequences, which are amazing. And again, um, you know, Sigourney Weaver's awesome performance as as Ripley. Uh, Aliens is a tremendous film and I can't take anything away from it. I love it. Anybody who says that's their favorite of the franchise, I can't fault them because Aliens is a tremendous movie. But it's always going to be Alien for me. I saw it on cable back. I guess I was 11 years old. When I saw Alien, and it was traumatizing, but it's a trauma that I like to relive every so often. So my number two, Ridley Scott's Alien. Excellent. Hard to argue with. Yes, very, very hard to argue with. And uh, that will bring us into my number two, a movie that is my mea culpa, a movie that is super important, and a movie that proves we can't do this entire list without crossover, (laughs) because my number two is Alien, 1979. Uh, that was not intentional. Uh, and I feel like I have to say, I believe in my top 10 episode, I may have, if you left it in, Josh, I, I assume you did. Uh, that yeah. I, of, course you, I, of course you did. Thanks, thanks for that, buddy. Uh, I may have alluded to the idea that was Alien strictly a horror movie. Now, it's scary as hell. 100%. I'm not going to, it's a, to be a stupid argument to have, but it's like, I, okay, that's called rationalization folks. That's called, I was trying to figure out how to work out my top 10 lists for HMP and not include one of my favorite movies of all time because I was trying to get in all those other ones. And that actually happened with both my number three for this list, Exorcist, Alien, and what will end up being my number one. That is the problem because those three movies are some of my favorite movies, period. Um, Alien is an amazing accomplishment. It is fantastic. I think depending on my mood, I said this to Dave uh, yesterday, I believe, I I think sometimes I prefer Aliens. I actually revisited that recently and I just, I find it, it's so exhilarating. It's such a, a, the momentum of that movie. But for slow burn, just under your skin effectiveness, you can't beat Alien. It is just a fantastic movie. It's funny, my, Oldest is about to turn 13 in October, and they're supposed to be releasing this for one weekend only. TCM is doing one of those Fathom Events deals because it's the 40th anniversary, and he found out about it and wants me to take him. Now, I love my children dearly, but they I think they love monster movies. Obviously, they're huge Godzilla fans. 
but their threshold for what they can take, I sometimes question just because I've shown I've shown them I, I like I showed them Twilight Zone, the Talkie Tina episode. And let's just say people were showing up at my door at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and <laughs> and so I, I said to him, I say, <laughs> and, I, and I was trying to push him to go see scary stories to tell in the dark with me. And he, and he was like, he saw the trailer. He's like, oh, oh. <laughs> Like, no way. And I was like, I'll come. I said, you want to go see Alien? You understand? He's like, yeah, but dad, here's the difference. I know that a xenomorph is not going to show up at my door. You know, <laughs> with, I was like, okay, well, that's a valid point. Because I have no, basically, I have no plans to get on this Nostromo. And I was like, okay, that's a valid point. So uh, I, I'm still on the fence as to whether or not, you know, his first true R-rated movie should be this one on the big screen. Because I have a feeling... I may have to pay for therapy, uh, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely possible. Yeah. So anyway, Alien is also my number two pick. Yeah, I can't fault you guys for that. I intentionally left off Dawn of the Dead and Alien because I just feel like they're they're talked about a lot. And and for me, I knew I was going to be talking about other movies that are talked about a lot, like Suspiria, that are you know as we talked about our um, our favorites. I thought, well, it's easier for me to leave off those two movies as great as they are and then put in some of my more weirder personal favorites like the eyes of Lord Mars. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh yeah and I, personally i would definitely say alien is a horror movie but i would also say aliens is a horror movie and really frankly pretty much everything in the franchise is a horror yeah. movie you've got a terrifying monster coming after you that it uses deadly force there's gore there's horror and suspense and tension basically any element you can think of that would be in a horror film these movies have they just also have action and science fiction which i don't think rules them out sure now i think that's fair and i think i honestly was just rationalizing yeah. why i wasn't including it on my hmp top 10 list but that being said i'm using this list to remedy that i definitely think that aliens is a horror movie i just what i like about it are the action sequences but yes. I definitely agree with you. It, it is a horror movie. Absolutely. Well, and I hear people say that a lot. They say, well, Alien is a horror movie and Aliens is an action movie. And yes, but I do think really all of the entire franchise is horror. <laughs> might be. So. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's fair. All right. Wolfman, you ready to do this? Ready to break out the number one? Yeah, definitely. So um, we already talked about episode... 12 wherein dave jay and i listed our top five scariest films and on that episode i listed at this number one a movie i actually hadn't seen and my rationale behind that was it's so scary i'm not even willing to watch it <laughs> so uh which <laughs> I, I got a lot of crap for at the time um i did eventually end up watching it by episode 38 of horror movie podcast in a segment I used to do called Wolfman's got nards, which was actually essentially me, you know, watching films. I was previously had too weak a stomach for and sacrificing uh, my own personal well-being for the podcast. And that film was 1973's the exorcist. And <laughs> it was a movie I put off watching because I just, I didn't think I'd be able to take it. The clips I had seen of it, uh, had already emblazoned themselves upon my brain in a negative way my entire life. And so the idea of actually sitting down and watching this film when I knew, you know, the most horrific things about it, when I heard, you know, the most disgusting moments 
retold to me on the playground in sixth grade type of thing. I thought, yeah, this is just not my cup of tea. I end up watching it for the Wolfman's Got Nards segment on episode 38, and I loved the movie. I gave it an eight. I called it a strong rental at the time. I will have since revised that rating. I, I, at this point, I give it a nine, and I call it a masterpiece and an absolute must-buy. Uh, this movie just stuck with me. I love... Yeah, there are the little gross-out elements of the barf and you know what certain people do with crucifixes. But for me, the story of these priests is so fascinating. When you talk about the catharsis, Joel, with this film, I had that experience too. Like, as awful as it is, also the story of the mother. Yeah. And the setting that it's in, just the beautiful buildings in the film. I know that sounds weird, but just the uh, stage that is set for this tale to unfold is incredible. And it just seeps into your soul. And I love the feeling this movie gives me again, other than the really gross moments, which do offend me. I do feel grossed out by, but they're absolutely worth like everything else for me that comes with the film, which just kind of enlivens me and gets me super excited. So yeah, my number one horror movie of the 1970s, save those that were on my HMP top 10 list is the exorcist. That is fantastic. It could have easily been my number one. Yeah, it's awesome. It, it, it is. I also feel that this movie so brilliantly captures at times this almost documentary-like quality, especially with Jason Miller's priest. The scenes with him, like when he's in the bar, or, you know, just there's these moments where, you know, it just feels so real. There's just something about the aesthetic of it. And the, there's a moment when Ellen Burst's character is walking. I think she, you know, she's walking to go to the church to start getting help. And then in the, the wind kicks up and it I, almost like you can feel the chill for when tubular bells starts to play and just the way the, the look of the film and stock, everything about it, it yeah. just feels like a, you feel a chill. I mean, it feels cold, uh, you know, and it's, it's so profoundly impactful. Uh, and I didn't get to just say this during my uh, little mention of it on my list, but when we went to Washington, D.C. in 2016, I made a point to drag my wife and three at the time, at the time, three even younger kids than they are now to that area of D.C. We located the house. We located the stairs and I had us all walk down. Boy, that is a steep staircase, kids. I mean, it is crazy steep. Um, and they even have like a little plaque at the bottom of it. We even found the restaurant slash bar that is featured in the in the movie. They're all really close to each other, very very close proximity. Um, and I had my my wife standing with three very young children <laughs> taking pictures in front of the the Exorcist stairs. Nice. Uh, uh, it, it was totally <laughs> totally worth it. it. Took us like an hour plus to walk to, but it was worth every every second. So uh, yeah, a fantastic movie. Great choice. Well- I definitely know what I'm doing my first weekend after I moved to Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. True. Good point. I didn't think of, yes. Yeah. Oh, we'll co- perfect. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Dave, do you have a number one waiting in the wings? I, I'm going to laugh if it ends up being that you and I have the same number one as well. <laughs> well, I don't know. I can't remember. I don't remember what you lost as far as um, your honorable mentions. But for me, my uh, number one film from the 70s, and if I could, I would cue John Williams at this point is Jaws. Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Just a masterwork. The first summer blockbuster. Uh, We discussed this, as Josh had reminded me, in episode 20, the horror on the 4th of July. 
in depth. There is a shark terrorizing uh, Amity Island. Uh, the new police chief, played by Roy Scheider, is uh, forced to deal with this. Uh, the town is fighting him. He wants to shut down the beach to save people, you know, from serving them up to the sharks. And the town council says we need these dollars because it's coming up on the 4th of July. We need the summer dollars to take us through the winter. They don't want to shut it down. He brings in a specialist, Richard Dreyfus, who knows a little bit about sharks. And they end up teaming up with uh, Captain Quint from Amity to go out and hunt this shark and thus save the summer in Amity. And it's just a wild film. I saw this not too long ago. My kids had seen portions of this film over the years. And I sat them down and, and we watched this from start to finish. And I just marveled at what an amazing accomplishment it is. It is uh, terrifying. It is exciting. It makes you laugh. And yet one of the greatest scenes in the movie is Quint describing what happened on the USS Indianapolis, a very true story about the ship that dropped off the atomic bomb. And it was so secret, nobody reported them. The ship went down and they were in the water for 72 hours, these men. I think something like 900 went in and 200 came out. The rest were taken by sharks over those three days. And can you just imagine? And just that story alone uh, built the terror and it was told so well by Robert Shaw in that scene. It's just an absolutely incredible film and I'm sure most people have seen it, but if you haven't, it has to be a top priority to to see Jaws. Yeah, definitely cannot disagree with you on that in any way. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it's literally, there's no point in even saying anything else. Uh, and in fact, I think we'll just jump right into my number one because guess what, kids? It's Jaws. <laughs> because there is no way in hell I was going to go through two top 10 lists connected to the 70s uh, for a horror movie podcast and not have Jaws be on that list probably at number one as well. Cause it, everything you said, Dave hashtag what Dave said, it, it is a, uh, masterwork. It is a movie I saw when I'm eight years old. My dad showed it to me and it kept, made me close my eyes at key points. And he's like, I close them now, which I think made it worse because I'm uh, visualizing in my head, really horrible stuff. And then I would see it, you know, a couple years later and realize that, yeah, I mean, it was bloody, but not to give anything away for those who haven't seen Jaws, but the first victim, I sort of assumed that the autopsy scene was the most horrific thing ever. He's like, cover your eyes, cover your eyes. <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah, Jaws is just this masterful movie. I also showed it to my kids here recently uh, this summer, about a week before we went to the beach. Because, you know, we live in Florida, so I figure, you know, uh, they need to be warned. They need to be aware of the realities <laughs> of uh, playing in the ocean. Uh, and uh, they they loved it. How did your kids take it? Um, loved it. They yeah, they thought great. it was uh, just a terrific movie. And, they're, you know, they, when, you're, when, you're, when you're so into it, you're talking back to the screen. Yes, you know, yes. Like uh, the woman holding her child while everyone else is running out of the water. They're like, get out of the water, you <laughs> idiot. You know, things like <laughs> yeah, that. Yes, yes. It nearly drove Spielberg mad. <laughs> but yet he turned it into something that was amazing. Bill Butler also, I have to give a huge oh yeah amount of credit to. I think he never, I don't think, accomplished again what he accomplished on Jaws. So there's definitely an argument that um, Spielberg's cinema geekdom played a big role in some of those shot choices. But um, I feel like Butler's cinematography in this is almost unmatched in the history of cinema. It's some of the best. Yeah 
collection of shots you'll ever see. As is the editing by Verna Fields, because I feel like if we're going to mention her and John Williams, yeah. we've got to call out Verna Fields because the editing in that movie is tremendous. Actually, we went to a thing here in Florida. Of course, we would have this in Florida, right? Shark Con, uh, we, we, where they actually, it's really great because they do a lot of like shark preservation stuff. And, uh, right. we, and we took the kids to it and they had Carl Gottlieb there. Uh, and I was able to go up to him and, you know, say hi and thank you for, you know, taking part in a movie that I, I know I'm not alone in saying, you know, helped shape my entire love of movies. So, yeah. All right. So you guys want to jump into the honorable mentions or just go around the horn and just do the the full amount that we have since I don't think it's that long of a list anyway for most of us. Yeah, it works for me. <laughs> so, Josh, you want to start us off? Yeah. So all three of these I toyed with being in my top 10. I was really trying to decide what to toss in there at the last minute. Um, you know, I was pretty solid on my top seven, but I wasn't sure after that. And I decided to go with the best quality films for most of those. So I left off this film, which I love the night stalker. It's one of my all time favorite films, but it's a made for TV movie. It's not shot as well as some of the others. And, uh, I thought I'd leave it here in the honorable mentions. This one I left off cause I was pretty sure Dave was going to put it in there. Blackula. I think it's one of the best, horror films of the seventies for sure. And I already mentioned it, although it is not um, love at first bite. It is Dracula from 1979 with Frank Langella, I think is oh. one of the best horror movies of the seventies. So nice. There you awesome. go. Those are my three honorable mentions I had left. Awesome. Right. Dave. Well, I only have one honorable mention. This was in my top 10 for a while. And then I ended up replacing it uh, only because of the very beginning of this movie, which is, you know, does a lot of building. It takes a while, but um, it is Salem's Lot. Uh, director Toby Hooper made for TV uh, was a mini series, and a lot of the beginning of it is spent building characters. But the second half of this, when the, it is in full vampire mode, is terrifying. Again, iconic images: a child floating outside a window, and every single vampire in this movie, including the lead one, is incredibly frightening. We did discuss this in episode 11, The Feral Vampires. Uh, we got into it a little bit more. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was, was for me. It wasn't my top 10, but it, the only thing that made it slip was that first part where it just takes a while. And I don't even dislike it that much, that first part where they're building the characters. But it does take a while to finally get into where, it's, uh, where it ultimately just is going to blow you away. All right. So for my honorable mentions... I felt like if I was going to cross over with anybody else, I've already done tw two with Dave. Let's have one with Josh. Uh, and uh, initially, my one of my honorable mentions was going to be a crossover with Dave because it was Salem's Lot, but we'll leave that to the side. Uh, <laughs> I decided I decided one of my, because I have two, I have two that I, ha I had left that I could use. One is going to be Amityville Horror. I, I decided, I, that is a, it's funny, it's a movie that, I don't know why when I was coming up with my whole list, I, I would, you know, you're searching for like, I want to see like, you know, like a master list of all the, the horror films from the decade to make sure I'm, I'm getting everything covered. And I don't know why I never came across it. Like it never clicked in my head. I think it's, it's 79, right? So I'm thinking maybe if I, it's somewhere in my brain, I had it as like maybe being 80. I couldn't quite remember. So, uh, but yes, uh, Amityville Horror definitely deserves to be in the conversation. And then my other one is a made for TV movie. Uh, all production values and everything else being aside, it is a, horror anthology and the reason why it's even on this list is because of one segment the final segment commonly known as oh, amelia yeah. you know where i'm going with this right dave 
Uh, I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's based on a short story by Richard Matheson called "Prey," which is e- is a, an equally effective short story. It is the Zuni fetish doll segment from Trilogy of Terror. I mm. love that short. That is just fantastic. No matter how many times I see it, it is disturbing. It is creepy. And you may think, oh, I'm not scared of dolls. Okay, I'll launch that little sucker in an apartment with you. Let's talk. Yeah, you tell me you're not scared of dolls. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, that is that is my choice. Trilogy of Terror. Specifically Good the one. Amelia segment. I was surprised. The ones I was surprised to not hear about, because I know you're a big Bob Clark fan. I was curious, Joel, if you'd go with Dead of Night or Death Dream. That I, have film. Never, I have never seen Death Dream. I know of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, that's why uh, I didn't pick I'd, it. I'm curious to hear your take on that yeah. as a Bob Clark. Yeah. Fan. yeah. Uh, for me, I definitely toyed with Hitchcock's frenzy. I was kind of surprised that nobody went down that road. I didn't. I don't know. What do you guys think of, about that? Film? What year was frenzy? Was it? 70? I love it. Frenzy was it's 72. I think. Uh, 72. Really? Okay. For some reason, I thought it was. I think I, you know, why I didn't, if I'm being frank with you, I thought it was uh, late sixties. It's interesting. We just did a uh, uh, Hitchcock uh, for the 200th episode of Land of the Creeps and Frenzy was in my top five Hitchcock movies. So you know what? It's one that um, I don't always just, I, I don't know why I didn't throw it in here, but it, it probably would deserve it. Maybe find another honorable mention. It would definitely be on there uh, without a doubt. Uh, but it's a terrific film and it's Hitchcock finally getting to do what he wished he could have done through most of his career. The last one I wanted to mention that I was wondering if it was going to be on Dave's list was Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I know mm. he had talked about that. Yeah, that's a great title. I was toying with putting that on the list. I really was. Any surprises for you guys? Yeah, there were surprises. There were yeah. a lot of, there were, and I, I was surprised that there was, a, there was not as much crossover, especially towards the beginning of these lists. Sure. I think it's, it's amazing. This was, um, the, this idea you came up with, Josh, is awesome. And I, I can't wait to delve into these other lists. Yes. Uh, for these other decades. I think it's it's it really lets us talk about a broad range of movies that maybe we wouldn't have focused on because we're we're getting in where we got to put our favorites at the top. And, and by not doing that, I think it it's, uh, sort of loosens that restraint where you could just yeah. you could just sort of let it go and look, well, these are favorites of mine. And I really want to I really want to put these on here. This is this is going to be a fun month. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Although if people hated my 70s list, they're really going to hate my 80s list. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It'd be interesting. I, I have a feeling you two may hate my eighties list. <laughs> It'll be, I, I, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting because the eighties is, is sort of uh, the wheelhouse for all three of us. So let's yeah. see just how diverse we get. Yeah. yeah. I fun. have no honorable mentions left. Me either. Me either. I got none for the eighties. I have one. I have one. I have the, I'll be the only one. I have a single honorable mention. That's well, I it. think uh, Josh, you had mentioned that maybe what we could do is any honorable mentions that we would have included maybe in the show notes of the episodes. Right. So if we had any for the seventies, let's say that went above yeah. and beyond, we might uh, include those. Yeah, let's do that. I'll, I'll put, I've got about 20 films that I w- were under consideration <laughs> for this today. Okay, so. cool. I'll leave my list in the show notes and we definitely encourage the listeners. Please leave your yes. top 10 horror movies of the 1970s in the show notes here at horrormoviepodcast.com. So that's it for this episode. Be sure to follow Wolfman on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Facebook at Icarus Arts. Wolfman also appears on the Gods and Monsters, a Universal Monsters Cast podcast. You can follow Gods and Monsters at MonstersCast on Twitter. And be sure to read Dr. Shock's written reviews over at DVDinfatuation.com. You can follow Doc on Twitter at DVDinfatuation. Doc also appears on the Land of the Creeps podcast. 
and be sure to check out my other show, Retro Movie Geek, at RetroMovieGeek.com, where we're talking about movies that are 20 years old or older. You can follow Retro Movie Geek on Twitter, at RetroMovieGeek, and you can check out some of my older stuff over at ForgottenFlix.com. We love reading and responding to your comments, so we hope you'll get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. It's a wonderful group of people. You can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode at HorrorMoviePodcast.com, where you can find this and all of our past episodes. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorMovieCast. If you'd like to support Horror Movie Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to us on Stitcher and Spotify. And be sure to get your listener-designed HMP t-shirts at horrormoviepodcast.com forward slash store. You can also become a patron of Movie Podcast Network for only $2.50 a month. Be sure to check it out at patreon.com forward slash moviepodcastnetwork. We want to thank singer-songwriter Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. We also want to thank composer Kagan Breitenbach for his arrangement and orchestration of Fred's original theme, which opens the show. You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com. And that's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, when we'll be covering our top 10 horror movies of the 1980s. Thank you for joining us for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. What you're saying is you want to do a franchise review. No, (laughs) definitely not a franchise review. Okay. Definitely not a franchise review. But I do. And I, there were things about the second one. Like you said, I did. There were things about the second one that I did enjoy. That one would be, I guess the best of them all, but that's just kind of saying, Hey, that's the nicest looking turd in that pile over there. You know, (laughs) there's just some really awful movies in, in it as a series. Yeah. But the original, and, and this is something I, years ago I had I had watched this and, and my kids had sort of sat there and watched a, a little bit of it too and you know they were creeped out by it because um, they were considerably younger but I remember thinking well I don't know if this one I don't know if I'm guessing it was rated R for content or whatnot but it wasn't there wasn't a lot of like really things that when I was growing up would have been objectionable material in my house um, you know it could be a story about Mother Teresa but show a pair of boobs and I'm not allowed to see it. Did I say basic instinct? No, you said fatal attraction. I did attraction. not mean basic no, instinct. I, I, you, said, you said fatal you attraction. You said fatal attraction. Okay. Yeah, you said okay, fatal. Good. You said fatal attraction. As you're watching uh, Aja films, the, the next one up would be Mirrors, uh, Joel. And I suggest you watch half of that movie anyway. Okay. Half um, of it. <laughs> the, the first half of it, I think, is is really strong. And, and then it's it's really not. I got you. Uh, but the first half of, of Mirrors is, is definitely worth seeing. It's just unfortunate you have to sit through the second half. You know, I know we're trying to keep this tight. I have another really quick story, if you don't yeah, mind, sure. because this is a crazy thing. Um, so my father-in-law is from Los Angeles, but it was really common 
in the West, I don't know if you guys have anything like this, but a lot of people from his era and even into my era, a lot of parents would send their kids to a farm to work in the summer. It was just kind of a thing. It was like one of those jobs that a kid could get before you were 16 years old, like uh, mowing lawns or delivering the newspaper. And this, a lot of people I knew did this. They would move pipe on farms. So they would send these kids up to move sprinkler pipes and you'd live on a farm for like a month or two. And you'd live in like a bunk with a bunch of other kids. And every day you'd go out in the sun and you'd pick up, pipe and you'd move it from one location to the next set up the sprinkler and uh, then wait a while then move pipe from another location to the next had a ton of friends who did that when i was growing up and my father-in-law did that as well and he did it i believe either in idaho or oregon from los angeles he told us the story you know they were out in the middle of nowhere and there was nothing to do and they're kind of going crazy the only thing to do was they would swim and they would go down and they would swim in this watering hole and there was this kid who they just thought was like the spawn of Satan. They hated this kid and he was mean to everyone. He, you know, he would kind of troll them and everything they were doing, but he didn't know how to swim. So that was the only way they could kind of get away from him as they would go and they would go swimming and he would uh, stay out of the water. So at one point feeling kind of bad about themselves, they taught this kid how to swim and they, they took him out and they took him swimming and um and taught him kind of some basic stuff and one night my father-in-law said they had the opportunity to go to a movie they were able to borrow the car and drive to sun valley idaho and go see a film so one of the boys could drive and they all piled into this car and they drove to sun valley idaho and they watched the omen and it freaked the crap out of them they'd never seen anything so scary a lot of kids were joking around that this kid who was back at the farm reminded them of damien (laughs) just this little evil kid and uh, they went to go get back in the car to drive home, and they realized the license plate, the first three numbers of the license plate were 666. Of course they, they screamed were. and freaked out, <laughs> got back in their car, and drove back to the farm. And when they got back, they found out that that kid had gone swimming by himself, and he drowned no. while they were at the movie. Oh, boy. That sounds like an urban legend. I know my cow. I had never heard this before. My father-in-law just told it at dinner like the other night. And I was like, that is crazy. Yeah. That's creepy. Oh yeah. Even weirder is his brother who had taught him to swim was swimming with him at the time. So I'm like, so what you're really telling me is your brother murdered this. (laughs) (laughs) And coincidentally brother's name, Damien. Yeah. Total coincidence. Wow. Wow. It is a fantastic movie. I'm also a massive fan of the original. And did you guys see the Abel Ferreira 1993 version? No. What was it again? Uh, it's it's just called Body Snatchers, but it is a oh, remake. Oh, yeah. I own that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I used to have the video store poster hanging in my my room. I remember liking that one. Uh, Meg Tilly and Gabriel Anwar. Yeah, it's, it's a good movie. So uh, it's not it's not on the same level, in my opinion, as the 78 or the, or the 50s version, but it's still... It's still a fun time. And it's probably the the only time that one of the greatest horror films ever made resulted in one of the worst movies or, or led in this uh, with its sequel to one of the absolute worst movies ever made, uh, which is Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Yes. Make sure we're specific. Yes. It's Exorcist 2. I've never been able to finish that movie. Uh, I struggled through it to write a review for it on the blog and uh, I'm absolutely amazed that Martin Scorsese came out and said he actually prefers the second one to the first one Oh, please! because I always admire Martin Scorsese I always admire his take on movies I love to listen to him talk about movies 
but I sat there and said, well, he must have, that must have been his heavy drug days um, when those movies came out. No, I think that's, he had a beef with uh, William Friedkin. <laughs> oh, maybe. Oh, that's right. You yeah. had mentioned that. I, th- I think, you know yeah. what? That, that's a good point. Yeah. I just, I feel like that's the kind of thing you say when somebody ticks you off. You're like, oh, really? You know what I preferred to your movie? <laughs> that one. <laughs> I guess that. Yeah. I prefer this train wreck yeah. to your film. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's harsh. Yeah. Harsh, dude. Have you seen The Heretic? Harsh, Marty. Josh? No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's uh, Just please watch it. Actually, you know, I like you too much. Don't watch it, but do watch it. Because I think you'll come away and go, there's no way. There's no way with this. <laughs> I would had love to, to do a franchise review of these films. I haven't seen the sequels. I know absolutely. the loved. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I, this is a franchise I would, because there's enough, there's at least a, a couple of bright spots in it that uh, were, were 100% worth uh, discussing for sure. Agree. It's it's is definitely worth it. And the show, yeah, the TV show is definitely worth it as well. Yep. I will say I'm never showing my kids this movie. My son asked if we could watch this because he's heard me talk about it so much. I, I talk about the impact of Jaws on beachgoers in my friend Keone Botharp's documentary Saving Jaws, and my, I'd let my son, my kids watch that documentary and. uh after that, they're like, can we watch a Jaws? I'm like, no, no way. And my son's like, please, because he's a big horror fan. I told him, okay, when you've had 100 hours in the water, in the ocean, then you can watch Jaws. <laughs> I don't want them to become afraid of <laughs> No, and, and that, that's, that is legit. That is legit. But I will say this. I was hesitant. And I thought, if okay, if I show this to them, they'd really wanted to see it. And I, and I do want them to see it as kids, because I got to be honest with you, Dave, it makes me super happy your kids took it the way they did. Because I've heard some other people say they showed it to their teenagers or older kids, and they sort of were like, it's, yeah, whatever. It's not that great. Because they didn't grow up with it, right? They didn't see it when they were little. Right. And so I was right. worried. It's like, well, crap, I don't want them to see it when they're like 25 and be like, yeah, this is why, Dad, why did you like this movie? So. I did. A week later, we went to the beach. They didn't miss a beat, man. They were right in the water. Didn't even cross their mind. For whatever reason, it didn't affect them at all. Like it did me. I remember me being eight seeing this. It deeply and profoundly disturbed me. But maybe I, I was, was just a wimp. in swimming pools and like through my entire teenage years, like not, not just the ocean. I'd get scared if I was in a pool by myself. Like, well, we did go used to sneak into swimming pools after dark and swim yeah. at night. But there were definitely times when like my friends would all hop out of the pool and I'd be in there in the dark. Yeah, and I would freak myself out so bad. Sure, um, I just don't want that for them because they're having the maze. Did we we swam with sharks and dolphins in the last year in the yeah. wild? Not like at a park, uh, like out in the ocean. And I just don't want them to. No, that's fair. Yeah, it's, it's, understood. That makes sense. It does it make sense. sense. And if you ever go to the Jersey Shore, though, I mean, I don't know how clear the water is. I'm guessing the water in Hawaii is is fairly clear, and I'm guessing in Florida the water is fairly clear. Um, when you get to the Jersey shore, it gets a little muddied. I mean, there could be a Russian sub 10 feet away and you wouldn't see it. Um, so it really puts you on edge when you're, when you're in some of the, uh, some of the Jersey shore water as to, uh, as to what could possibly be swimming very close to you. And wasn't it the Jersey shore back in like the, was it the twenties or the teens when there was some attacks and that supposedly is what helped Peter Benchley even come up with the idea. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, th- I think I think it was. There's yeah. a lot of interesting things yeah. at the Jersey Shore. There were pirates on the Jersey Shore that would lure ships in. And I'm talking like in the, uh, you know, well the 1700s and early 1800s that would lure ships in, kill the crew, and steal everything on the ship. It's a, it was a wild west kind of area for a long time, and uh, obviously it extended out into the water too. Yeah, it was really cool. And I just sent you guys both a text. I have old newspapers 
from the 1940s that were my great aunts. And uh, after she passed, I ended up with quite a few of them. I mean, some that say like D-Day type things across the, you know, the, the front or Nazi surrender, that kind of thing. And one of them, I was just going through maybe about three weeks ago. And it was one of the like inserts in the paper. And I just forwarded it to you both. And I'm just going to real quick. It caught my eye because right across the top, it just says it's from August 15th, 1945. And it says 883 lost in sinking of cruiser Indianapolis. And it's actually wow. the, amazing. The paper. And I'm, I found, it, I was like, Oh my God, like of all the other, I mean, some of these other papers are, you know, talking about the surrender of the Germans, the surrender of the Japanese, you know, these, all these big moments in world war two. This one was the one I'm like, I'm framing this. <laughs> I mean, this is literally <laughs> the newspaper that is connected to Quint's story. This is amazing. It really boils down to the fact that we're having a top 10 each, a new top 10 outside of our main one. And you only get your honorable mentions are your you had five and it's the however many you had from that decade on your original list. You have to subtract from that five and whatever you got left is what you got. 